I am so excited to do the interview for Cold Valley. Oh, me too. I <laughs> cannot believe that that's our episode that's going to be posting next week. Literally next week. And we're recording it in two days. In on two Sunday. days. We're talking to them. And y'all. I. Amazing. <laughs> so exciting. Also, <sighs> hey, this is Blood and Wine. Yes. I'm Brittany. I'm Tyler. And next week we're we have our special episode. Um, yes, we do. It is where we will be interviewing the two lead investigators mm-hmm. for the investigation discovery documentary Cold Valley, which premieres November 29th. And, and then the then second episode. 2nd December 6th. Yes. Yeah. And it's literally so exciting. Oh my God, y'all. But don't worry. Uh, while next week's going to be amazing, this episode is also I know. going to be amazing. I feel like usually when you have an, a special that's going to come out, the episode before is kind of like filler. We did not do that this nope. time. We, nope. We went for probably the heavy, not heaviest, probably the hardest hitting episode we've done. Yes. Uh, is going to be this one. And I'm excited for it. Me I'm too. I'm really excited for this one. I think once we say who we're doing and go over the topic, y'all are going to be like, ah, Okay. Yes. Surprised y'all didn't do this before. Well, you know, we I mean, it took were us almost it. to episode 30. We were saving it. Sure. These are two that were meant to be saved. So. That, okay. I'll give you that. <laughs> well, don't forget about Patreon. Yes. And that that is totally a thing. Absolutely. A thing that y'all should definitely check out. Yeah. Um, it's an amazing community we have. We have our... We also do our murder minis, which is, like, one of my favorite things to do. I love our murder because minis. Because I, I hate when you're finding case and researching and you find ones that are just short. It's just like, not I long can't. enough to be an episode. Yeah. So that's... We we get to have fun with our murder minis and throw them. And they're very free form. It's kind of like whatever case we found. Love it. Yes. And also, our Patreon people have known about Investigation Discovery for... A lot longer than they people have. who listen to the podcast. They um, uh, have for quite a bit now. Yeah. So different little insights like that. Definitely check out our Patreon. Look into becoming a donor, being able to get access to our murder minis and just all this really fun stuff. Yeah, totally check it out. And then also be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts um, or all the other major podcast apps yes. like Spotify, Stitcher. Spotify. Stitcher. SoundCloud, all those ones. All the ones, all the ones. Make sure to subscribe so you get alerts to our new episodes every week. Yes. All right. Well, do you want to jump into the topic? Yeah, it's going pretty quick, but this is going to be a very long episode. Yes. So we went into this thinking, well, actually, let me just preface this real (laughs) quick. You might be wondering, I thought Tyler won the last episode. Why is he doing the topic? Funny story. We were getting wine, and Brittany was like, nope, we're doing this wine. I want to do it. So she stole the wine, and I was like, fine. I'll pick the case. Yeah. We'll, we'll just swap. So I Whatever. picked the case this it's time. It's a great wine. And it's a great it's a great topic. It's true. So, so I was thinking about this is the week of Thanksgiving. Yeah. And even just moving forward, there's so many holidays. There's going to be so much travel going on. And I don't know about y'all, but the time... When I actually listen to podcasts mm-hmm. is when I'm driving or when yeah. I'm in the car. Like Commuting. that's 
that is my time to listen. Mm-hmm. And with everyone going to be on the roads or sitting in the airport or doing all that fun stuff. Yeah. Uh, we were like, let's just go all out. Yes. Let's do like one of the heaviest hitting episodes we've done. So this topic is basically we just picked two of the most infamous serial killers yeah. in United States history. Yes. And I'm not going to tell you uh, who mine is, but I'm not going to tell her. Who, like, we're not going to intro who we did until our cases, but y'all. It's when a, I say y'all yeah. are going to be like, really? How have y'all not done that yet? It Fair. I was thinking the exact same thing all day. Yep. But... Uh, We've talked about it. We just haven't done it. Yeah. <laughs> but this one is... It's big and yeah... It's a very freeform topic. It's it's not a very structured one. We were just like, I want to do this case. I want to do this case. Cool. And you build the topic around it, and exactly. it worked out perfectly, I think. Yes. So just uh, infamous as fuck serial killers. Yes. There's the topic. Right. So the wine that I so gracefully stole you did. as an you idea. You stole it from me. And I, I will admit, this is a wine I have had before, but it is one of my favorite. I don't think I've had it before. Well, I... you're going to really enjoy this one. And I thought with this topic, it, it fits really well. Yeah. No, that is very true. I picked Seven Deadly Zens. Ooh. Wonder what that could be. Maybe a Zinfandel. It is. It is a Zinfandel. What a surprise. And it is actually also from the Michael David Winery, which is... obsessed with them. Well, that's where Freak Show's from, and I think you've mentioned Earthquake. Yes. I had no idea until today when I was doing the research on this wine that they were all from the same, like, brand, the same winery. They're in Lodi, California. Mm-hmm. This wine, the Seven Deadly Zins, is one of my favorites. When mm-hmm. I first found this one, it's it's one of my go-to, like, oh, I've, you know, I'm celebrating something. Or, like, I want a really good, bold red. This yeah. is what I go for. And it very much ranges in price depending on what state you're in and what store you get yes. it from. Which is a thing I never think about with wine. Like, obviously, if you go to... If you're in a state where you can buy wine at a gas station, it's going to be more expensive there because of convenience. Yeah. Well, and that's exactly what this one is like because we got this one at HEB for $12. And I've seen it as much as $18 other places. 17 to $18. Uh, But I will say, even if it is a $17 to $18 bottle, y'all, it's so worth it. It's so good. You're hyping this up. Um, So a little bit about the Michael David Winery. It's been around like this family has been growing grapes for over 150 years in california so this winery was founded in 1984 by brothers michael and david phillips and they're uh, the fifth generation grape growers in the family and then also the sixth generation so uh, one of their sons and i believe his wife Mm -hmm. i think are now also working at the vineyard oh my gosh um all of their wines come from grapes grown in the Lodi region, mm. and they're all according to the Lodi rules, which is this set of over a hundred different standards. 
um, that account for all of the different aspects of the winemaking for it, you know, to be very sustainable. So there's environmental factors, social factors, economic factors. I did not read the list because, like I said, it's 100 things, but it's really cool. The bottle we got is from 2016. And I did a little bit of research about this specific Seven Deadly Zens. And Mm -hmm. apparently it's one of the wines that really put the Michael David Winery on the map. They first introduced this one in 2002. And it was uh, 700 cases of a 2000 Mm -hmm. vintage. And it was named one of the top 10 hottest brands by 2004. And it just continued to grow from, at the beginning, they had 700 cases. And within 10 years, they were doing 250,000 cases of this. Well, which makes... Annually. This makes sense because the other two of their wines that I know of now, Freak Show and Earthquake, I've never really heard of. Seven Deadly Zins I've absolutely heard of. Yes. And so it started to, the the sales were plateauing a little bit and they went through a whole packaging redesign. Mm. And this is why they have some of the like super fun bottles, um, like Freak Show. If you see the Seven Deadly, it's a really interesting bottle. They also apparently used to have a Seven Heavenly Shards. Which oh. I don't think they make it anymore because I couldn't find it anywhere. Like, I could find it on, uh, like, the information, but nowhere for sale. Like, everywhere oh. I said, like, out of stock. And the last year I found was 2011. So oh, wow. Okay. If y'all have ever had that, please tell me about it because I'm yeah. just so curious. By 2016, Seven Deadly Zens is now America's number one Zinfandel uh, by dollar sales. Wow. Okay. So, some of the tasting notes I read from Wine Enthusiast, which, like I said, this wine is fucking amazing, and I know I give it a lot of hype, but obviously through what I just read, it's real good. So, the tasting notes, savory pepper and grilled beef beef aromas make this wine appetizing. Rich Mm. berry and ripe plum bring excellent concentration and depth to the palate. It's big and bold, yet polished. Firm tannins interlacing with ripeness and spiciness to keep it balanced and help propel a lingering finish. So, nice. as you can tell, like, literally, like, all these things are saying, like, spicy, bold. As you know, those are my it's, wine things. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it sounds like a real, like, solid zen. Because when I think of zins, I think, like... Heavy on the tannins, a little bit of fruit, but the big thing you taste is like that spice and pepper. Yeah, but this is absolutely, like I said, what put this winery on the map um, nationally. And the bottle... Well, then open it. The bottle's super cool. It says the Seven Deadly Zins Center Select. Um, and I, w- I was reading as I opened this. On their website, they have some reserve wines and it Mm. has some of the other uh of the seven deadly sins like actually like there's one that's gluttony there's one like just stuff like that but those Mm. are between the 40 to 50 dollar range um not there yet we're not there yet but i really want to try them yeah because they have one's a cab and i'm like i've got to try that yeah if their zen is this good and if that freak show cab was as amazing as it was that is true that is true. I'm thinking a $40, $50 bottle from Michael David Winery is going to be probably one of the best ones I've ever had. That is fair. That is fair. So, um, mm. Yes. So I was reading 
I don't see it on this cork. I was reading in an article and it was like wine and vine, I think, which is where I got a lot of my information about the packaging, which I want to share. I'm going to share that one on our blog because okay. it was a really cool article to read about just marketing and wine. And I'm like, what? The, why am I not doing this? But it doesn't have the 1984 on the cork. I thought it might. Oh. oh, and it's like, it's like a nice deep red. Look at this. Ooh, that's cool. Where it's almost purple. Yeah. Oh my God. Yes. Also, dear God, I need this one. Granted, I did have like half a bottle of bubbly today at work. It's fine. We had our Thanksgiving meal. I at work. need this wine so bad. Ooh. Smell how good it is. You can immediately smell the spicy and like this leathery. Yeah, I d it smells like leather. Mm -hmm. And and I think when when I say that it it actually does like you can actually yeah. smell leather. It's not one of those like oh I taste mm, cow bits. Ew, that's <laughs> <No>. one that's <laughs> I hopefully called beef. Uh, two, I, I really meant... hope you're not tasting beef in wine. <laughs> I meant the uh, whatever cows eat grass. <laughs> <laughs> I was like. Uh... Okay. No, 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 I'm getting a bit of, like, hide and fur. <laughs> anyway. Okay, now I'm just thinking of, like, beef wine. <laughs> Cheers. Mm. Cheers. It's one of my favorites ever. Oh, my God. I remember Mama showed me this wine, and I have obviously tried. So, this is, like, what, in my early 20s, I think. And Mama showed me this wine, because it's one that she really likes as well. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh my god, this is so good. And even since then, this is one I continuously go back to. Like yeah. I said, where it's like my prize wine. Oh, it needs to turn into a, like just a staple that I have. It's fair. And so if you can get it for good. twelve bucks, yeah, I know. Well, well, we can get this one and J. Lore, which is another of my go-to's, mm -hmm. also for twelve dollars. And that's another one that I've seen as you know as high as sixteen or seventeen. Fair. It's still. It is. It doesn't take the place of my favorite wine, the Saracena, which... I think you've talked about that. Remind yeah. me. Okay, so how far do I go back? I'm just going to tell the whole story, because I might have told y'all about the time me and my friend almost got kidnapped and abducted into a hippie commune in California, but... Which gonna, is, you know, always just an what you do. tale. So when I was moving to Seattle, I drove. Me and my yep. friend packed up my car... And left Oklahoma and drove to California and then drove up because it was in the winter, so we didn't want to go over the mountains. When we were driving through Northern California, we were like, okay, we have to go to a winery. Like, we're in the Napa region, we're in the Sonoma region, north of San Francisco. So, not like Northern, oh, okay. Northern California. I was like, but... wait, dude, that's not where Napa is. I only... Okay, so literally... I didn't know where Lodi was. So before mm. we came over, I was like, where is Lodi? Is that near Napa? Like, when I go to Napa, can I go to Lodi? I mean, I could, but no, they're not necessarily close yeah. to each other. In the state of California, yes, they're very I close. I mean, that's fair. But I was like, this is outside of San Francisco. So you said north, and I'm like, no, no. Did, okay. you, did you turn back? No. it. <laughs> to me, northern California is north of San Francisco. Got it. So Got it. But we're driving, and... We see a sign on the highway that said, like, wine tastings this way. And we're like, oh, my God, that's perfect. Yeah. So we turn 
and we're going up this like weird like gravelly road now in the like forest yeah in the the redwoods we weren't really in the redwoods yet but it was still like it was that kind of big ass trees and stuff yeah and we're seeing like cars that are like half buried in the ground with and like painted and like oh like an amarillo yeah but these just old cars like also just turned into art like this one that had like uh it was like in a tree it was a car and we're like okay which again all of these things fair all of these things (laughs) are clear warning signs saying just turn the car around and go you don't need that line we didn't uh at no point did we so we're still driving and we come up to what looks like this summer camp almost (laughs) yeah (laughs) and we go up to the gate uh because there's like a gatehouse with a dude in it who's like asking for donations yeah and we're like oh we're for the wine tasting and he's like donation please and we're like okay sure (laughs) uh so give him like five bucks each yeah we park and we walk around and it is this weird as fuck summer camp feeling place with like buildings and trails and stuff and we're like okay we go like, this in. is California. Who knows? Yeah. So I'm like, okay, this doesn't look like a winery, but maybe it is. We go into this main building, and it's a gift shop. Like, yeah. it's a legit store, but it's things like a solar-powered toilet. Or what like, the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> or like... Uh, I, wait, I don't even understand. I, like, it... I, I guess it, like, disinfected, or, like, you could flush it. And it was solar power. I don't fucking know. I was very confused. Okay, okay. And then it it had just... And it was a big... Like, the kind of gift shop you would imagine seeing in, like, a natural sciences museum. Like, it was kind of big. Yeah. And we go up to this woman who is, like, behind the counter. Also, there are people everywhere. Yeah. But one thing we did pass is a group of maybe 20 people on stationary bikes. Yeah. Just biking. No headphones, uh, silent biking. And um, oh my God. they were powering the place. All the bikes were like hooked up to the grid. Oh my God, that's how the place stop. got power. You have never told me this part <laughs> oh. of the story. No, yeah. That, oh so that's God. when we walked through. We're like, we just want wine. <laughs> oh my God. So we go up to you this woman. And we're like, hi, we're, we're looking for wine tastings. And she's like, no, what you are seeking is a wish. Oh my God. And we're like, Okay. So she goes over and she gets a couple marbles from fucking somewhere. Ooh, I don't want to know where. I I mean, like, a bowl. Oh. (laughs) And she puts, like, a spell on them. I mean, she's, like, putting them in her hand. I'll put a spell on you. It's exactly what happened. Now you're mine. If she started singing that, it kind of sounds like an amazing place. Well, no, it wasn't. (laughs) She's, like, speaking in tongues to the things. Oh, my God. And then she... (laughs) gave one to each of us and was, she was like now go to Sarah and she will fulfill your wish she has a streak of blue hair and she lives past the intern cabins and we're like I don't know what the fuck you're talking about <laughs> what are these intern cabins so she like points in the direction and we leave and we're like do we try to find Sarah like what does this mean <laughs> or do we get the fuck out of here and then we're kind of like meandering because we're also like i kind of want to see more of wherever the fuck we are and these intern cabins that she pointed towards are like sketch 
I mean, it's like eight people to a tiny room sleeping on the floor. Like, th- no. this place is culty. Someone comes up to us and is like, you should join us. You should join us. Join our bikes, our energy. Jo-. And we were like, oh, no, no, no. And that's when we turned around. We were like, nope, we're out of here now. Like, there's and no wine. There's no wine. All the out. way back to the car, we pass a woman with a blue streak in her hair. And we were like, oh, that's Sarah. She'll grant our wish. And I was like, I don't, nope, we're not getting our wish granted. Don't need we're my out. wish. Don't need my wish. Uh, did you keep the marble? I did, but I'm pretty sure I lost them when I sold my car. Oh. Anyways. Well, that's really unfortunate because that would have been a cool little memento for this really crazy story you have. Yes. Um, it would have been. I'm actually really sad now. But you should be. Uh, we left this vineyard or this, uh, I don't know, cult stop. Whatever. And got, no wine. got back onto the highway and we we're like, okay. Now you really no. need wine. Yes. We we're like, okay, <laughs> now I want wine. And then maybe a couple miles down the road. We see a sign that says Saracena Vineyards this way. Yeah. And we're and it looks like legit. It was like Billboard S. We're like, okay, there's a real one. So there's the wine. We turn off into this what is clearly a winery, i.e., it's a road. It has like a wooden arch over it, and there's like grape fields on either side. And we're like, okay, legit They're winery. Have wine here. <laughs> Not and we a get cult. to the tasting room, and um, the I, I know there's a word for them, but like the people who run the tasting room. Yeah. Uh, but she was like, "Hey, would y'all like to try some? We haven't had any visitors yet today." And we're like, uh, "Sure." Also, it's like afternoon. Yeah. Uh, so we do we do like a flight of just their different wines, mm-hmm. and I wound up buying a cab. Yeah. And this was when I was broke as shit, and I bought a $45 bottle. That's how good it was. Yeah, yeah. And... I want to try this wine so bad. I Because want you to... said how good it is. Oh my god, we should look for it at Total Wine. We should. That is I where it would be. It. Yeah. That's totally where it's going to okay. be. Oh my god. So anyway, that is my long-ass story about um, how I found my favorite wine. But Seven Deadly is really good. Yes. <laughs> This one's delicious. Michael David Winery, one of my faves ever. And the fact that I've learned that they make, like, literally all of some of my favorite wines. I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. yep, you're my fave. And I really want to go visit their vineyard in Lodi. Absolutely. So, well, I have already consumed about half of this glass. You absolutely have. Because I need it. Okay. Um, why do you need it? I need it because the case I picked is... The infamous Ted Bundy, mm. which y'all so I'm gonna, so fucked up. I'm gonna preface this with I'm a kind of real shit at being half of a true crime podcast because I know literally nothing about Ted Bundy other than he's kind of attractive. That's it. Well, I think when I get into the story, there's going to be some things that you have heard about that'll connect the dots. But there's a lot in here. Like, I know a lot about Bundy. And in my research, I I still found things that I didn't know. And it's because he literally, when you think of a serial killer in America, you think of Bundy. Like, yeah. Bundy was the one who, I guess, 
kind of started this whole thing. He's so dynamic. He's so fucked up. Trendsetter. He, yep, he set the trend of all the serial killers <laughs> and everyone else had to follow. But, like, the things that he did are so abnormal. And one thing that I'll get deeper into this, but I'm, I'm totally cool saying this up front. You know how a lot of serial killers in our research, we find out, you know, they lack empathy and they mm-hmm. lack all those things. Yeah. He, he didn't. He didn't. Oh. But he was so manipulative and twisted and just charming. And it's scary. And it's why so many people are so incredibly fascinated with Bundy, even to like a really inappropriate, attractive type yeah. fascinated with him. Um, and that's, you know, just women flock to him and. It's just crazy. That's one thing I find very strange is there. there's this fascination with, like, sexy serial killers. It's that's weird. scary. Because you look at things like Dexter. Yeah. You look at things like uh, all of the... All of the Norman Bates, Bates Motel, like, all that stuff. Yeah. Like, this idea, this, like, gorgeous serial killer, and then the fans of this. I don't know. I'm obviously being the fan of a TV show character and being a fan of an actual fucking murderer are very different things. Right. But the idea behind it is so weird. It's very dark, (laughs) very disturbing. But there are also the people... Which, um, so I'm not done with Making a Murderer Part 2, but as you can imagine, obviously Stephen Avery is getting tons of letters and fan mail and, like, these women are fawning over him and, like, it's a thing and it's why there are so many, okay, I say so many because I feel like I hear about it, but there are people who begin relationships with convicted felons and yeah. some of murder and some where there's no question of innocence with and like I say that because with Stephen Avery yeah there, there is um the question about his innocence but yeah there's this weird fascination that a lot of people have that get gets to a very disturbing level where I'm like you need to check yourself because that's a bit much yeah um so I used a lot of sources for this. Okay. And so I'm just going to, like, go through them. Um, I used Britannica Online, Crime Museum, which was a website that had a lot of crime information, mm-hmm. Wikipedia, Biography, A&E TV, Investigation Discovery, YouTube Video, um, a website called Heavy, Ranker, Daily Mail, Truthfinder, and then a show that I watched on CNN's HLN network called mm-hmm. How It Really Happened. Okay. Which, oh my god, I just discovered the show this morning and I binged like three of the four parts of the Bundy portion. I think it's like season three. But it's one of those things and I'm like, oh, if I would have watched this at the beginning of when I started doing my research, I wouldn't have had to go through all these sources because it is so chock full of details. If you are a a Bundy person and you just want to hear a lot of information and even more detail than I will give, please watch how it really happened. It's on the CNN go app and they have multiple seasons. They go over some other cases as well, but 
obviously this is one where I was like, yes. Yeah. Because there's a ton of Bundy documentaries out there and even movies created. There's a new movie with Zac Efron that's coming out. Um, hopefully sometime next year where Zac Efron plays Bundy. Oh. You oh, know? yeah. We've talked about this. Yeah. It's called like Extremely Wicked Something and Vile. It's this really long movie title that for some reason I can't remember. <laughs> but um, it's it's going to be really cool. So with all of that, I'm going to jump on into this really, really heinous fucked up story that I'm about to entertain you with for the next like five hours. You ready? Okay. Yes. <laughs> five hours. <laughs> so, Ted Bundy is essentially the standard of which all other serial killers are judged in the United States. Yeah. And he was active in the 70s. He was a murderer, a rapist. He was a necrophiliac. Like, all of the things that you could imagine a serial killer could do to a victim, he did. Jesus. His mom, named Louise Cowell was 22 years old and unmarried when she had Ted. And this obviously was a humiliation in the family because it was 1946. Mm, He was born on November 24th, which I just realized this episode is coming out just a little bit before what would have been one of his birthdays. Um, He was born in Burlington, Vermont, in a home for unwed mothers. The 40s were weird. They were, because it was like, there was so much shame around her because she was unmarried and she was young. She was 22. But she then moved home after she had Ted to live with her parents in Philadelphia. We never learn who his father is. Uh, His mom tells stories about maybe it was like a Marine or maybe it was some other guy, but we really don't know. Mm. There are actually some accounts where it's said that his grandfather was his father oh oh fuck so where this gets really fucked up is bundy was raised because of this whole situation in the 40s and the shame that his mom brought to the family he was raised as if his grandparents were his parents and his mom was his sister oh so this is just to hide the fact that he was an illegitimate child and he went through a very long period of his life believing his mom was his sister. Even to the point when his mom, a few years later in 1951, moved to Tacoma, Washington. So she literally went from Philadelphia to Tacoma and took Ted with her. Like, he still thinks this is his sister. She gets married to a guy named Johnny Bundy, and Johnny adopts Ted. So that's how he gets his name, Ted Bundy. Okay. And this whole time he's thinking, like, I'm being adopted by my brother-in-law. Well, it's weird because the story of how Bundy found out that his sister was actually his mom, we don't really know. There's a lot of different accounts. He said multiple different accounts. The investigators could never really find out exactly what it was. He, again, he would just tell people different things. You know, there are some stories that say one of his cousins was calling him a bastard and found his birth certificate and showed him. There are other stories that say when Bundy was in his, like, late teenage years, he was, I think, in Vermont visiting his grandparents and found his papers. And we just, we don't really know when Bundy finds out. But that obviously that is something that was insanely, like, that messed him up when he did find out. He was 
really angered by this discovery. And he had this lifelong resentment towards his mom because she never, never told him about his real father. Um, and then leaving, leaving it for him to find out about the fact that he was that was his mom not his sister on yeah. his own. Buddy started showing some really odd behavior though from a very young age. When he was three there's a story that his aunt tells that she was taking a nap and she wakes up and there's a circle of knives around her and Bundy's just sitting there giggling. He's three. What the actual fuck. <laughs> yeah. When he was a teenager, he had a, a darker side to him. He was this just character started to emerge and he was embarrassed by his family's cars. He wanted better things in his life. His family had no money. He was jealous of all the other kids in school. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had this very narcissistic fat fixation on material objects and possessions. And this, it'll come up again later in his life. Okay. He started doing some weird things again with his odd behavior in his childhood he would wander the streets and dig in people's trash to find discarded pornography or he would try to look um at his through his neighbor's windows so he was a peeping tom or a peeping ted and that's fucking weird yeah just keep your eyes to yourself uh yeah he also found a an interesting series of porn that i didn't really know was a thing but apparently Back in, like, the 50s and 60s, they they had these detective magazines, and they were, like, graphic novels and comics mm-hmm. that showed, like, women being, uh, like, in bondage, being choked, like, very oh. violent detective-type oh. magazines. And the terror that these women were portrayed as going through was very arousing to him. That's, no, that's not a good thing. He also was accused of stealing a lot of things in his childhood. A lot of, you know, his record was cleared when he was 18, but he was into uh, small thievery. And when it comes to his social life, there's a lot of varying accounts. And some people say that he chose to be alone and he didn't really understand how to build relationships with other people. However, some of his friends would say, or some of the people he went to school with would say that he was well-known and very liked and that he was a medium-sized fish in a small pond. Okay. But what Bundy would say was, I don't know what made people want to be friends. I don't know what underlay social interactions. So he's just like, the way he's thinking internally and the way he's portraying himself are two different things. That and... I can see that as coming across as the, like, kid who doesn't care. And for some fucking reason, to 15-year-olds, that's cool. Totally. Which, if you're an adult and you think it's cool to not care, change your damn perspective because... You need to care. Caring is a good thing. A soapbox for another time. (laughs) Yes, totally. Well, in the early 70s, he was a student at the University of Washington. Are you a little jealous he got to go there? I mean... Like, you grew um, up in the area, though, so... Yeah, mo- I, f- I feel like most serial killers did. I mean, they didn't. There were so many they, in the Pacific Northwest. Like, so it's many. no joke. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> it's no joke. Um, so when he was in college in the early 70s, he fell in love with this wealthy, pretty young woman from California. She had everything that he wanted. Money, class, 
and influence. And when things didn't last, he was pretty devastated by their breakup. Oh. And she'll she'll definitely come come up later. Oh. Um, but in nineteen seventy one he took a job at Seattle's Suicide Hotline Crisis Center. Okay. Which is an interesting job for Bunny to have. Uh yep. So when he worked at the Suicide uh, Hotline Crisis Center, that's when he met and worked with Ann Rule, who at the time was a former Seattle police officer and an aspiring true crime writer. Okay. She would later write one of the most definitive Bundy biographies, The Stranger Beside Me, which movies have been made from that. I've got the book on my fucking bookshelf that I've got to start. Okay. Oh my god, that's horrifying. So she, when she met him, before he's doing any of his murder, she wants to be a true crime writer. Yeah, yeah. And the, oh my no, god. No, 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 that was her aspiring, like, and that's part of, I think, why she was working at the Hotline Crisis Center. She's a former police officer. Oh, my God. But she she said, you know, she saw nothing in Bundy's personality. And she described him as kind and empathetic. And, you know, he would walk her to her car after their shift at, like, 2 a.m. And they'd get to her car and he'd be like, you know, Anne, you need to be careful. Make sure and lock your doors. Be safe. All the while, it's like... Because someone like me will come and fucking yeah. kill you. Oh my god. And it's just like it's it's crazy. And she never suspected who he was and yeah. what he was capable of. Gosh. Um he ended up graduating from the University of Washington with a degree in psychology, which when you think about this with what is to come, it's almost as if he Became very professional in learning how to trick his victims. Like, he just he oh. had a degree in psychology. Yeah. Dude knew what he was doing. Um, he had been accepted to law school in Utah. Ew. So, by the end of the 70s, he had completely transformed himself and he became more outwardly confident. He was active in social and political matters. And he even got a letter of recommendation from the Republican governor of Washington after working on his campaign. So like, so he's at this point just a good guy. Yeah, he is like very well liked, very attractive for the seventies. Like, I mean, for the seventies. Okay, when you see some pictures of Bundy, like some you're like, okay, and some you're like, oh no. Okay, well then I'm gonna look up a picture of him while you continue. Well, so he had dark hair. He's you know five ten ish or whatever blue eyes like he was a very attractive guy and that was what made it very easy yeah for him to attract the victims that he did definitely because yeah i'm seeing a couple pictures of him when he's young and yeah no he's an attractive dude yeah i've got Got unibrow like (laughs) oh yeah he keeps that for like the whole time and i every time i see pictures of him i'm like can you just get the unibrow just Just like like when you're shaving your face just run that razor don't do that if you're good if it's if it's leave it or do that also it's the 70s so there's this one picture which um this photographer i believe this is when buddy was in colorado and this will make more sense to you later but this photographer was allowed to go in. It was Jerry Gay and take all these photos of Bundy. Yeah. And like 
this is one. It's black and white. This guy won the um, oh. a Pulitzer at some point in his career, but like, but he's an attractive guy. Yeah, no, he is. Um, so creepy as fuck. Yes. So there was a point in his life when all of these fantasies that he had started to build up from supposedly like all this porn, which that's a whole larger conversation that I'm not going to get into. Yeah. Um, but he started to turn some of his fantasies into reality. He would go out and he would get really drunk, see a woman leaving a bar, and he would follow her. And this happened once, and someone saw Wendy, him. Stop it. Someone saw some. This woman saw him, started to scream, and he ran away. He did it again, and this time he takes it a step further. He hits the woman over the head with a stick. He gets, like, really shocked, and he runs away. What the fuck? So while there's definitely some debate as to when Bundy actually started killing, most of the sources say that it was around 1974, um, Bundy himself has even given very differing accounts of when his first kill was. And there is a possibility that he killed as young as when he was 14 years old, because around that oh. time, there was an eight year old girl who went missing in the, the area where Bundy lived. Oh, but that's never one he's ever admitted to. Yeah. Um, but around 1974, many women in the Seattle area and in Oregon went missing. Jesus. So in January of 1974, a woman named Joni Lenz, or in other sources, her name is Karen Sparks. This is an interesting thing about this case. A lot of his victims, you find them in different names, depending on what source you're looking at. With There are a lot of victims that... We don't know. They're unidentified. Were a lot of them, like, sex workers who might have gone by different names? No. They were all, like, college students. Weird. So, it's very interesting. Because, like, you'll watch a documentary and they'll say Joni. You'll watch another one and they say Karen. And it's not, like, a first name, middle name thing. It's, like, two completely different names. So, apologies in advance, listeners. If I get some of these names off, just know I found very differing accounts in a lot of my research. Weird. Okay. Yeah. So she was an 18-year-old, and she was attacked in her bed. And, like, Bunny broke into her house, attacked her in her bed. Oh, my God. She was found barely alive, and she had her metal bed frame rammed into her vagina. Fuck. So she had been, like, beat and sexually assaulted, but she did survive. And then later, uh, not long after that, he attacked another woman named Linda Ann Healy. Linda did not survive. More and more women went missing, and it's estimated that he killed about one woman a month. Jesus. So by the summer of 1974, there were six women missing in the in the uh, Washington and Oregon areas. Mm-hmm. And this is just showing that, like, Bunny had become a very calculated killer. Like, he... Figured it out quickly and yeah. knew what he was doing. And stories started circulating about some of the victims being seen in the company of a young, dark-haired man known as Ted. Uh, Bundy would always alter his appearance. He would give fake names, but the first name was always Ted, which is really fucking weird. That's weird. It's like okay. if you're going to change everything else about you. Because like he, you can see pictures of like... How he would change his hair, like maybe be curly, maybe be straight. He'd yeah. change the part. He'd change his facial hair. I could honestly see it, though, from the point of if he says his name's Jack 
and then just not thinking they'd ask him like oh jack yeah yeah and he doesn't respond or he doesn't have no, that true. kind of initial of like yeah that's my name no i know so i can I, I could see him making a very conscious choice of being of of going by his first name yeah well and like i said so he he was a very attractive man but a lot of his features were very normal so he could very easily alter his appearance by doing things like the facial hair or the the part or whatever um it was very easy to disguise he did have one very distinguishable mole on his neck which is why he would oftentimes wear a turtleneck so there would be no like identifying marks that his victims would see um he had this whole ruse of he would lure his victims to his car by pretending to be hurt. So he would have crutches or a cast or a sling. And oftentimes he would be like, hey, miss, can you help me get my books into my trunk? Like, can you help me get my books off the top of my car into my car? Because yeah. you know, I've got a sling or I'm on crutches. Like, I can't do this. And of course, these women see this really attractive guy and they're like, sure, well, I'll, I'll go help you. Yeah, absolutely. He had a 1968 tan Volkswagen Beetle, which Ew. literally this car is in, um, I think, a museum in Tennessee now or something. Oh, weird. Yeah, it's just like, it's a Bundy's car. Like, it's a thing. His fucking Beetle. Okay. But, so, Gross. after he would lure the women to his car, he would knock them unconscious by striking them over the head with a crowbar or a pipe or something of the sort. He'd handcuff them and place them in the car. He'd actually removed the passenger seat. That way he could um, lie the victim down and so no one could see that there was anything in the car. Oh my god. Yeah. He also impersonated authority figures such as like a police officer or a firefighter. Just to gain his victim's trust before he attacked them. Yeah. So he would typically strangle or bludgeon his victims, as well as mutilate them after death. He would also return to the site of where he dumped the corpses, which is later to be discovered to be Taylor Mountain. This is where many of his victims' body parts were found. Sometimes it would just be the head. Sometimes it would just be oh other God. parts. Where is like, Taylor Mountain? It, it's somewhere in Washington. In the Cascades. God. Yeah, but that was his dump site. Um, and he would sometimes even take the bodies home with him for sexual gratification. This is where necrophilia comes in. Oh, God. And he would display their decapitated heads in his apartment and slept with his corpses until they just became so decomposed that he had to get rid of them. Oh my god, I've been to Taylor Mountain. You have been? Yes. It's, sorry, I just looked it up on a map. You had this horrified look on your face and I was talking about the heads and I'm like, did you just look that up? No, I'm not going to do that, especially after my case last week. Yeah, no, you shouldn't. Um... No, I've been to Taylor Mountain. It's in, um, it's near Snoqualmie and North Bend. So it's. Oh, isn't that a lake? Lake, whatever? Lake, yeah, Lake Snoqualmie is one of them. And Snoqualmie is like the foothills. That's weird. So Uh, this literally means you have probably been in the presence of bodies. Yeah, that's horrifying. It is because that was his dumping ground. And all of his victims have not been found. 
you might literally be the only person that has visited that area and didn't know this, but... Now, yeah, now no, you know. uh, I went there to go hiking, because we hiked around there, and then we hiked up Mount Sai, which is, like, just the other side of the highway. Huh. Yeah. Well... Okay. So, just... Good to know. You're like, well, I'm scared. I was like, Taylor Mountain sounds familiar. Well, there's a reason. <laughs> Bundy was clearly a sexual sadist. However... He never killed anyone he knew. And this could partially be why Anne Rule was never a victim, because he worked with her. It was always, he was a stranger killer. Hmm. Like, he killed people he didn't know. Random, mostly college students that he came across. Um, However, he was absolutely a psychopath. And there are a lot of different theories as to how this came about, whether it was an attachment disorder or... Uh, it, potentially his mom being passed off as his sister, like insanely fucking him up in the head. He was just so sick. And yeah. he even would describe some of the post-mortem rituals that he did to a couple of his victims, like shampooing their hair and applying makeup. Oh, that's fucking weird. I don't know why that is so weird, especially with all the other stuff that he's doing to his victims' bodies. It's it is weird. But though. that it it that, I feel like it's because that's intimate. It's extremely intimate to wash someone's hair even when they're alive. Yeah. Even when they're dead is like just a such a different level. Ugh. But he wanted to possess them. And this goes back to like his always wanting like money. Possesses in like own. Yes. He okay. wanted to like possess these women <laughs> Not like a demon. (laughs) I I know, but you could... You're talking about now he, you know, very much suffers from psychosis. I could see you meaning possess as in, like, be them. No, he doesn't want to be them. like, own them. He wants to own them. That's super These are his objects. Like Like I said, he had this narcissistic fascination with material objects. He looked at women in that same way. These women are his Barbie dolls. Yeah, basically. Oh, he you. would simultaneously molest women and strangle them as a part of his crime. And this was the only way he could achieve sexual gratification. So it's like that may not have been why he started doing this, but it turned into the only way he could get off was when he's killing someone. Jesus. As body counts started to rise, witness descriptions started to spread And there were several people who were reporting people that looked like there were sketches made and things were pointing to Bundy. And he had co-workers who would be like, oh my gosh, you kind of look like this sketch and your name is Ted and you drive a Beetle. But they would laugh because they worked with Bundy. Yeah, because obviously it's not him. (laughs) It's just so funny that he's so similar. That's Um, horrifying. So like... People would even report him, and he was on the suspect list there in Washington, but police would see that he's just, like, this average great guy, he's a law student, like, no, he's totally cool, there are other people that look like this, and they'd rule him out. So early on, he was he was oh. on lists, and people called, but they were like, nah. God. <laughs> I know. So I wonder, the detective that made that decision, or the group of detectives who were like, yeah, we looked at that, now we're, no, it's not him. What did they think? When they found out? When they found out it was. They stayed hot on the trail, and there's a lot more to the story. Like, So they would like, be like, no, it's not him, but not like, lose focus, or lose sight of him. Right, and another thing about Bundy is that he was very skilled 
He never left evidence. So there was never ways, like, he could not be traced to crime scenes. Like, I mean, he would wipe things off. He just was... In this time when forensics were not as advanced, he still knew the things to do to not be caught. Wow. Because in a lot of his cases, there are very limited evidence that can, that's more than circumstantial that can attach him to the case. So during this time, and even before he started doing his killings, he was dating a woman named Elizabeth uh, Kolopfer. And he, like, they started dating in 1969. And she later started to notice some odd behaviors. But of course, it's just like, oh no, like... We'll pass it aside. It's not a thing. Yeah. When the sketches started to come out, she had one and she showed it to her friend. I think her friend's name was Mary. And she was like, Mary, who is this? And Mary's like, oh, that's Ted. And then Elizabeth starts like bawling because it does look like Ted. Yeah. But she stays with him. And they're together even while he moves to Utah in 1974 to go to law school. And she's starting to... Uh, connect the dots because as soon as he gets to utah women start disappearing there as well and so she's like nope and she calls the police and like because she had recognized like oh the nights where these women went missing ted wasn't at home in washington then all these women started going missing in utah police however ignored her where they were convinced it had to be someone else in 1975 they're still together Bunny returns home after his final exams to Seattle, stays with Elizabeth, and she doesn't tell him that she had reported him to authorities on three separate occasions. She'd done it in Washington. She'd done it once the stuff started happening in Utah. She, like, makes plans to visit him in Salt Lake City in August. I wonder if she is either of the mind of, like, keep your enemies close. Like, if I'm in this relationship know. with him, I can see what's going on. Or if she's doing this as in like it could be him, I want the police to investigate so they can confirm it's not. Because it can't be him, but it could. But I don't I honestly don't know. And I think it's one of those things that I don't know if maybe she was scared of not agreeing to let him come home. Like if she knows in her heart that he's doing these things. Yeah. And then she's like, no, don't come visit me from law school. You know, maybe she was worried for her own safety. But, you know, when he came and visited her, they talked about getting married. And, you know, she's just playing along with this. Bundy's also not disclosing that he has other girlfriends in Utah. Multiple people that he's dating at this time. And actually... The movie that's coming out with Zac Efron that I mentioned earlier, The Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile, which, like I said, longest that fucking title name ever. But it, it tells the story through her eyes. So oh. that's how that this movie is, which okay. I'm like Good, really because excited I, to see What it. I was thinking, I was like, gosh, I mean, I want to read Anne's book, but damn, I want her to write a book. I want to read that. Like, yeah. that I dated Ted. I dated Ted. Seriously, though. Well, finally, in 1976, their stormy relationship did end. Okay. And so she got she got away. Um, this, however, was after he'd already been arrested. Because in, on August 16th, 1975, he was pulled over by a police officer in Utah. They started searching his vehicle. Like, I think he was speeding or something. 
And they found um, lots of burglary tools. A crowbar, a face mask, rope, handcuffs. So he was arrested for possessing all of these tools. And as they started to look into it, they were linking him to a lot more sinister crimes than just burglary. Yeah. They searched his apartment... And they didn't find any porn, but they did find magazines of junior majorette girls. So it's like young, vulnerable girls, which could have been his okay. type of porn. And he, like I said, they're, they're starting to discover some of the seriously fucked up things that he was doing. He was arrested for the kidnapping of Carol Durant here in Utah which is one of the very few women that was actually able to escape from him. Oh. And he ended up being convicted of this to, and uh, received a 1 to 15 year jail sentence, which is a really wide range. For kidnapping someone. Yeah. But basically what happened is like he picked her up and this is when he was impersonating a police officer. Yeah. And so like he went inside a, a bar or a building or whatever and said that her car had been broken into and would she come with him? And she's like, sure. And he brings her out to his fucking Beetle and she gets in. Honey, cops are not driving a Beetle. Well, and like, they pass the police station and that's when she starts to realize, like, this is, like, something's the matter. Yeah. And he tries to handcuff her and somehow he accidentally gets the handcuff like both cuffs on one wrist and so she's able to get out of the car and escape yeah so she like runs away and later that night he attacks someone else and he ends up dropping the handcuff key on the ground somewhere and so that's how he's connected to her and also i mean she's a witness so during the trial she's like yeah no that's him um so he got this one to 15 year jail sentence and america was like very shocked when he was arrested even just for this kidnapping the police in Washington are still like he has become very much a suspect in all of those disappearances and so this happened in Utah and people are like what he's this like really attractive law student he has it all like why would he do this um, and then, Why would he just try to kidnap this woman? Like, yeah. They just didn't get it. And two years later, he was indicted on murder charges for the death of a young Colorado woman named Karen Campbell. Named Karen Campbell. Yeah. And he, in this case, decided to be his own lawyer. He wanted to defend himself. Uh, not a good idea, ever. However, he was given a lot more freedom For some reason, maybe it's because he's very charismatic or whatever, he was given a lot more freedom. They let him go to the law library to do some research for his own case because he's representing Uh, himself. But he's also in jail. Well, you know, he jumps out the window and escapes. Yep. Yep. And he is captured eight days later. But he jumped out of a two-story window and he's just, like, in Aspen somewhere. Oh, my God. Um... In December 1977, he escapes custody again. So he's back in prison there in Colorado. And what he did, he made a hole in the ceiling of his cell, like where the light fixture was. And it was like this one and a half foot by one and a half foot square. He loses 30 pounds. Oh my God. So he can go through that hole. And he fucking did trial runs. In the middle of the night. To what make the sure fuck? he could get in and get out. 
And there were other inmates that were saying, like, they could hear someone in the ceiling crawling around. And the guards were just like, whatever, shut the fuck up. Like, yeah. stop. He was not discovered missing for 15 hours. So he had this huge head start on the police. Mm. And he gets out again. And this time he's he's missing for a, a little while. He makes his way, so that he's in Colorado, he makes his way down to Tallahassee, Florida. Oh my god. Yeah. While he's there, he's intending to lay low, like stop the killing, you know, I don't know, chill on the beach or whatever the fuck you do. You do they're not in Tallahassee. Not in Tallahassee. No. I don't know. Tallahassee I don't know where Tallahassee basically is. Georgia. Oh. Well, I need to look at a map clearly. But you Bunny do. was like trying to not be doing this life anymore. Yeah. However, he only lasts about a week. And if you think about it, he hadn't killed anyone in a while because he's been in prison. Yeah. So I'm sure those urges were just coming back. He lived next to Florida State University. Mm -hmm. And he even started going to classes. Like he would just go to the the really big ones where you can't really tell. There's like 100 people in there. But teachers started, professors started noticing him and they just thought he was another student. Yeah. However, on the night of January 14th, 1978, he broke into the Chai Omega sorority house and attacked four young female residents, killing two of them. Oh, my God. This was a very barbaric attack. Yeah. He grabbed what they think was probably just one of the logs on the fireplace, and this is what he used to beat one of the women to death. Oh, my God. Um, Lisa Levy and Margaret Bowman were the two women who died in this attack, and... The survivors were Karen Chandler and Kathy Kleiner, and they were in very, like, serious critical condition and, like, you know, went to the hospital. Not only did Bundy attack these four women in the Chai Omega house, but then he walked about four blocks down the street and broke into a duplex and attacked Cheryl Thomas while she was asleep in bed. All these girls were asleep in bed when he attacked them. So it's like they woke up. To being attacked. and Because I was picturing for some reason, like, I don't know, they were all hanging out in the living room. No, they were in bed. Like, middle Jesus. of the night. And while, like, all the police and the ambulances are at the Chai Omega house, that's when he attacked Cheryl Thomas. Mm. And so it's just like, it's, it's insanely fucked up. And they don't know what is going on. Yeah. The city is terrified. And then... About uh, almost a month later, in, on February 9th, Bundy kidnaps and murders a 12-year-old girl named Kimberly Leach. Jesus. He took her from outside of her school in Lake City, Florida. These were the crimes that did mark the end of his murderous rampage. And he would eventually be pulled over. So the rest of the, like, Florida has no idea who this is. Yeah, there's someone is. There's, he, they murdered know. these two girls and, and Cheryl. Well, and they don't necessarily the know. Yeah, they don't necessarily know that there's a connection yet between okay, the Chai Omega fair. and the uh, disappearance. Because at this point, they don't know she's been murdered. But the disappearance of Kimberly Leach. Yeah. It's when Bundy is pulled over later in February for some type of traffic violation. And again, 
No one knows who he is. He gives, like, uh, a different name. This time he doesn't actually use Ted. It's like Chris Pagan or some shit like that. I don't I don't know what it is. Yeah. But, so they're, like, interrogating him. He's acting really weird. And they take his fingerprints. But, again, this is the 70s. Like, that takes a while to come back. Yeah. And then once they finally get the information, they realize that they have captured the FBI's most wanted man. That they have Ted Bundy. Oh, my God. Yeah. And this is known around the country. And again, like those officers in Washington are starting to connect the dots. The ones in Utah and Colorado. Oh, so he like, still hasn't been charged for anything in nothing. Washington or Oregon. No. Oh, my God. None of that. And, and again, like I said, there's no so evidence. So he's only right now. They He's top of the most wanted list for kidnapping the murder and, and the murder. kidnapping in, in Colorado. The one oh my gosh. That's it. But I mean he's suspected. it's still I mean it's still a murder and a kidnapping. Like it's a lot, but holy shit, there's so much more they don't know. Exactly. Well, and the thing is, they know a lot of it, they just can't prove it. That's why he's only oh. been convicted of the kidnapping and the one murder in Colorado at this point. So when it comes to why was Ted Bunny doing this? Like why was he killing all of these women? It's later discovered that a lot of his victims resembled that college girlfriend I told you about at the very beginning. The one that was wealthy and had everything. Oh. She is known uh, most in most source, sources as Stephanie Brooks. However, it, that might not actually be her name. Yeah. Um, she was very attractive. She had long, dark hair that was parted down the middle. If you look at pictures of all of his victims, they had long, dark hair parted down the middle and so there's a theory that his killings were fueled by the rejection of stephanie and that his victims were all carbon copies of her i wonder was this known during the killings no or only after oh because you know when it was known after and i know it's i can't think of the actual cases that it's happened in but i have seen it in like tv shows where that pull inspiration from real cases yeah. where like there's a serial killer who's killing women with dark hair and so women in the city just start bleaching their hair right like as a to be safe that's another one of those things that it's just a detail but for some reason that really hits home and illustrates that fear It definitely does. And, like, this was something that was determined as a theory after the fact. Yeah. When they started comparing all of these women and what they looked like. But apparently the story of Ted and Stephanie, you know, they dated. And when Ted finally met her parents, her dad was like, he's not good enough for you. She also felt that he lacked maturity and ambition. And, like, she just, nope, we're done. We're done. Deuces. During a trip to California in 1973, Ted actually rekindled his relationship with Stephanie. And at this point, you oh. know, like I said, he's working on this campaign for this governor. 1973. Okay. So this is when, like, supposedly before the killings started. Yeah. As far as we know, um, he's like made himself better. He's working with this politician and he rekindles his relationship with her. And she is just like, oh, my gosh, you've made this transformation. Like you have ambition now. You're a professional. 
all the while, Ted is also dating this other woman, Elizabeth, at the same time. Oh, my God. Neither, like, Stephanie nor Elizabeth know about one another. Stephanie and Ted start talking about marriage. And, you know, Ted was introducing her to others as his fiance. All of a sudden, he ghosts her. He completely oh. ghosts Stephanie. She finally is able to reach him about a month later, like a month after he had just disappeared. And she just demanded to know why he left, why he just all of a sudden ended the relationship without explanation. And he says in this like very flat, calm voice, he's like, Stephanie, I have no idea what you mean. And hangs up. And she never hears from him again. Oh my god. So basically, he wanted to prove to himself that he could marry her. And once he discovered that, the, like, because, you know, she's the one that broke his heart and all of this yeah. shit. And he, she rejected it. And she's that ultimate prize object. If yeah. he could get her, he could, you know, she's first place. If he could get her, obviously he can get second, third, fourth, whatever. Yep. Like, he can get anything. Jesus. People are fucked up. Oh, people are so fucked up. And he is, like, king of fucked up. So, back to Florida. There was evidence connecting... Ted to the two child mega murders there were bite marks that he left on the bodies and the prosecutors ended up having to get a warrant to search Bundy's mouth which is probably one of the first things like that that ever existed but the reason they did this is because if they were to receive a court order that would have had to go through Bundy's lawyer Bundy would have known and he could have smashed his teeth yeah like because you know he's in his cell with all the steel around him all he he has to do is smash his teeth exactly and with how new this type of evidence is using like a forensic dentist which is something i didn't know it existed but obviously super makes sense absolutely like of course there is yeah they had to make sure that those bite marks on the body and an impression from bundy's teeth matched Mm -hmm. perfectly any little differentiator and it wouldn't be as strong of evidence. And yeah. this was the only non-circumstantial evidence they had to go off of. And it's oh. still kind of circumstantial evidence. Oh, my God. Like, this was their one thing. So that's why they kind of fucking warrant on his mouth. Yeah. So they, like, they go get him and pull him out of his cell. And they're, like, walking down the hall. And they're actually at the dentist's office to take the impressions but there's all these pictures up on the wall like professional photos so bundy thinks he's at a photo studio and as i told you earlier this photographer in colorado had already taken all these photos of him so like yeah bundy's been photographed before like this is nothing new so we think that's that's what this is and they get him into the room and sit him in the chair and he's handcuffed like hands and feet and then they read him the warrant and uh, in the warrant, it says something like they're allowed to take any force necessary to get the impressions. Money's like, oh, you don't need to do force. Like I told you, I'm not a violent guy. And he just lets them take the impressions. Like no fight, no nothing. So they had that bit of evidence for the Chi Omega murders. He was indicted of all three of the murders. So the two Chi Omega sisters and then Kimberly Leach, the 12 year old. What about uh, Cheryl, the woman in the duplex? She survived. Oh, oh, yeah. good. Okay. So two of the Child Mega girls and Cheryl, the one that was four blocks away, survived. Okay. So Bunny was indicted for th- these three murders, and a plea bargain was created and put on the table. And basically, these were all capital cases, 
And if Bunny would just admit to being guilty of these murders, they would take the death penalty off the table. Wow. Bundy didn't do that. He would not sign the plea because he was saying he was innocent. He then told his lawyers that he did not need them and dismissed them and said that he would represent himself because they did not believe in his innocence. He really thinks he is God. He thinks he is the shit. And he thinks that his, like, couple years of law school means he's a lawyer, which he's not. He oh, didn't finish law school. Honey. So, both of his cases then went to trial. During these, his charm and intelligence made him somewhat of a celebrity. This is what I alluded to earlier. Mm-hmm. That, you know, he was not going down without a fight. Yeah. He, he led his own defense. He protested his innocence. So, think about that. He's representing himself. And then he did have a pretrial deposition where he yeah. interviewed the two surviving victims of the Chai Omega. Like, oh, so they're like at a table and he's talking to them. And these women are just like, I mean, because they have very little memories of that night because they woke up being attacked. Yeah. So seeing and knowing what he looked like, but it's like they knew that was him. Yeah. So just imagine how terrifying that would be. Well, and I could see, you know, being someone who is very attractive, very charismatic, very suave, very very charming, that, you know, he thinks he could sway a jury. Like, that's his strategy. So, I get it. Yeah, well, and as I was, you know, as I said, he was this very charming, well-liked individual, and I'm sure he thought that that could carry him through well because unfortunately in jury cases evidence is important but it's not everything if you have this scary fucking looking dude who you look at them and you're like i would not even want to like accidentally step on their toes or they would stab me and the evidence doesn't really point to that yeah they're probably found guilty yeah if you have this person who is sweet and just innocent looking and just kind and nice and the evidence point of them, but they're just, there is no way that person could do that. And that's the kind of person Ted Bundy is. I mean, you're saying that uh, Anne earlier is saying, like, no. Like, he would it. never hurt a fly kind of and thing. And that's, oh my god. Well, and so Ted was co-counsel. He did have a couple of attorneys, but essentially Ted was in charge during his trial. Mm-hmm. And he at one point in the Chi Omega case, cross-examined one of the university police, which one of his attorneys was originally going to do this, but then when um, this police officer went up to the witness stand, Ted just stands up, grabs the folder, and goes up to the podium. And so his attorney's like, okie dokie, we're going to make it look like that's what was supposed to happen. He asked the officer to describe exactly what he saw when he pulled the cover back on one of the beds of the victims. Yeah. Which was literally the worst thing that he could have done because in this moment, Ted is it's it's like he's proving like it made him look very guilty and he's reliving the he wants all the details. Like he wants to relive this moment oh and the way God. he was asking this question. And this trial was this was the first to be televised. So that's what created all of this fascination. And Ted had all these groupies following him. And that's so fucked up. Many people described him as 
the type of guy I want my daughter to marry. Are you fucking kidding me? Because they couldn't see him as a serial killer. They did not think he did this. Ugh. And so, like, women flocked to the trial. They sent him messages. There was one woman that came every day and sat in the front row. And she's, like, making eyes at him that is the fucking whole time. Horrible. I don't care if um, Jesse Williams, the actor who plays Jackson Avery on Grey's Anatomy. Who's, like... One was, of the most attractive men in the world. Not even one of just is. I if he was in trial for murdering three people, I would here in Austin for some reason. I'm not gonna go sit in the front row and be like, "Hi, you're really hot." I don't care if you murdered innocent people. Like what the actual fuck, people? I don't care if you're like. There's no way he could have done it. He smiles. Lots of people fucking <laughs> smile. He's a murderer. Yeah. So, <laughs> another woman that I haven't brought up yet, her name is Carol Ann Boone. And she's a mother of two whom had dated off and on with Ted for many years. They worked together at the Washington State Department of Emergency Services. So, another place that Ted worked that you would not expect a fucking serial killer to nope. work at. She... Like, they were together in Washington. She moved to Colorado when he was there. She moved to Florida eventually after he was caught. She believed that he was completely innocent. And she had all of these claims to, like, back it up. Well, in February of 1980, they got married. Mm. And this was actually done when she was on the witness stand as, like, a character witness, I believe. He was asking her questions, and there's this weird fucking loophole in Florida. I don't know. Basically, when, because they were in court, when he, he, she's on the stand, and he asks her if she'll marry him, and she says yes, they're legally married. Oh, are, what? Yeah. What? So, (laughs) he conducted this brief but legal ceremony quote unquote unquote uh during the trial and um yeah so this was during the penalty phase of his trial jurors as you mentioned earlier how you were saying like jurors like thought he was all nice or whatever da, da, da. no oh. they saw through him good because he was so like fucking conceited and they did not see him as a lawyer they saw him as a killer and they thought about it for six hours oh, before shit, they determined short. that he was guilty. Yeah. So, that's like enough time to read through the evidence and be like, yep, we all agree. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So in July 1979, Bundy was convicted of the murders of Lisa Levy and Margaret Bowman, which are the two child mega girls. And he was given the death penalty twice, once for each of them. Wow. He then goes into the trial for the kidnapping and murder of Kimberly Leach. And in this trial, he actually had evidence against him. There was a van that was found that in the back had, like, leaves and stuff that led them to her body. There were fibers uh, from her clothing in the van and fibers from Bundy's clothing in the van and where she was found. Like, they had solid evidence So, Bundy was found guilty for the murder of Kimberly Leach Mm -hmm. and given the death penalty yet again. A 
third death penalty. So he has penalty. three on him right now. Okay. And he, so Bunny fought for his life. He appealed and he tried to take his case to the Supreme Court for 10 years. And he was turned down every time. Um, then, after 10 years of appeals, this is when Bundy starts to talk. And he starts confessing. Oh my god, they still didn't know? No, they knew, but they well, had but they no still confession, like, no evidence, no nothing. They still couldn't pin him to, oh my god. None of god. the ones in Washington, Oregon, I think there were Idaho, there was the kidnapping in one in Colorado, nothing in Utah. Like, no, like I said... Bundy knew how not to leave evidence. I, they could tie him to uh, nothing. See, I knew that, but damn. So he is essentially, after all of his appeals are exhausted, he's begging for his life. So he's like, I'll talk. What do you want to know? And, you know, he's threatening to hold back information. And, like, it's just, it's crazy. He's doing everything he can to avoid the electric chair. Yeah. During this time, during all these appeals, um, Boone, his wife, gives birth to a child in 1982. Oh, his? It's his. She says it's his. Uh, his name's on the birth certificate. They had conjugal visits. And that so, is yep. um, to be Ted Bundy's child. Uh, she's obviously had her name changed. Uh, yeah. Her last name is not Bundy. Carol eventually stopped visiting Bundy in prison. I think it was once she finally realized that he was guilty of everything. Yeah. She she stops visiting him. Oh, my God. So, right before his execution is when Bundy has an interview with Dr. James Dobson, where he says, because at this point, we still don't know his motive. We yeah. do not know why he did all of this. But he has started confessing to a lot of these crimes. Um, he said it was po- the porn. And uh, one interesting thing, Bundy had been uh, baptized into the, to the Church of the Latter-day Saints, so he'd become a Mormon. And he had a couple of lawyers that reached out to him after they saw something on TV uh, John and Marcia Tanner, and they said that they got, like, word from God that they had to help him, and this is where the whole porn addiction comes out. Ew. I don't know about you, but I think it's a load of shit. I think uh, Bundy was, yeah. again, trying to argue for his life. Yes, and he's, he's literally going to do any excuse. He's already shown that he is as manipulative as a person can be. Yes, yeah, no, I'm sure if he could make the excuse of, like, I was, um, if this was all a psychology experiment. Yeah. He, then he would have made it. Like, if he thought that that would get him off or uh, get his life spared, he would have said and done anything. No, I think that's absolute bullshit. Well, and I do think his attorneys tried to prove that he was insane and so they couldn't give him the death penalty and they're like no this dude's like fucking sane yeah he's real sane because he's manipulative but like he um he was saying that if he had never you can watch this interview by the way because so bunny did this and then dr james dobson had the taped interview and he gave it to broadcasters along, but only if they played the whole thing unedited. So if they wanted to show this, like the final interview with Ted Bundy, 
had to be unedited. Yeah. And it's like all of this talking about how like, oh, you know, if I hadn't have gotten into the addiction of porn, if that hadn't been so readily available, I wouldn't have these urges. And it's like, okay, really? maybe it influenced, but it was not everything. It was not See, everything. Porn addiction is a thing. It very much and is there, a thing. There is definitely a lot that is wrong with porn. Even taking it from, like, removing it completely from, like, a religious or, a, like, lust is wrong kind of thing. But yeah. just, like, a, in what it is, there are a lot of things that, that, like, you know, porn is not good. There are a lot of things that porn is good. You know, in a lot of space, it's very empowering for women. It's very, like, but really, your porn addiction made you a murderer? Well, and like... It sounds like a really shitty Dr. Phil episode. It does. And this this absolutely led to a larger investigation into his motive. Um, but it by no means spared his life. Yeah. There were crowds that showed up in Florida outside the prison on the night of his execution. Because they wanted to witness his end. They had signs. They were like, you know crank up old sparky like they fucking hated ted bundy they wanted him dead yeah and like obviously this is something you don't bring up at fsu like you don't make jokes about it you don't which number one you shouldn't be making jokes about this no anyway no but it's wow it was a big fucking deal and um so when the night finally came january 24th 1989 they bring him into the room and, you know, he his knees like buckled and and they get him into the chair and he sits down and he's just like looking everyone in the eye. Um, oh, I'm sorry. It wasn't night. It was 7 a.m. I read p.m. when I looked down. It was 7 a.m. So this was in the oh. morning. Uh, they turned on the electric chair and Ted Bundy was executed and the crowds outside cheered. They set off fireworks, which wow. this is one of the things where I'm like, yes, he was seriously fucked up. What he did was, it, I, I can't even put words to how yeah. awful it was, but fucking celebrating someone being killed See, that's gets my thing. I, as much as there are very, very evil people... In the world. Ted Bundy is one of them. He is the epitome of evil. I cannot stand behind celebrating someone's death. That that is just not... fireworks. Okay. Like, because I remember when... um, And I I feel like we may have mentioned this before, but I I remember when um, Osama Bin Laden was killed. I think we've had this conversation already. I I think we might have, but it just... People it's the same thing. celebrate and party in the USA became the number one song on iTunes. And I'm not <laughs> Miley. Yeah, I'm poor Miley. When that being <laughs> looped into that is wow. But, I didn't realize and that. I cannot. I cannot get behind that. I can understand relief. Absolutely. Right. I can understand joy of this isn't going to happen to someone else. Yes, 100%. that he's like off the streets and but celebrating someone's death is not okay. No, it's not. But in the end, um, Ted Bundy admitted to thirty-six killings Jesus. of young women across several states: Oregon, Washington, Utah, Colorado, Idaho, California, and Florida. 
Jesus. Literally everywhere in the 70s. However, experts believe that the final tally may be close to 100 or more. Uh, because there are, like I said, they don't know. This yeah. number 36 is going off of what he said he did. He changes his story all the time. There are a fuck ton of missing women. Like, yeah. Yeah. They really think he was responsible for a whole lot more. And the exact number will never be known. Yeah. Damn. Um, Ted Bundy has obviously inspired novels and films about serial killers. And even before his execution, as we mentioned in our very first episode, they used him to help solve the Green River killer cases and find Gary Ridgway. Which is just insane. It just shows How they're interconnected is weird. It is. So to close this out, I do want to recognize some of his victims and say their names. I didn't throw out my story, and I just want to... Make sure that they are not forgotten because this is horrendous. Yeah. Um, so in 1973, Bundy did confess to the murder of an unknown hitchhiker. And this is supposedly before this 1974 when he started. But this is one that he confessed to towards the end. It's never been confirmed. Mm-hmm. But in 1974, there was the murder of Linda Ann Healy. There was the attack of Joni Lenz, who survived. Mm-hmm. Donna Manson, her body was never found, but Bundy confessed to burning her severed head in his girlfriend's fireplace. Fuck. Uh, Susan Rancourt, who was abducted, and her head was found in his graveyard on, on Taylor Mountain. Roberta Parks disappeared from campus in Washington, and her skull was also found on Taylor Mountain. Also, all of the remains that were found on Taylor Mountain were, like, just bones. They had been, I mean, completely decomposed. They were bones only. Brenda Carol Ball, uh, her skull was also found on Taylor Mountain. George Ann Hawkins, Janice Ott, which was one of two women that Bundy kidnapped and murdered during his um, rampage on Lake Sammamish, which I didn't go into that, but there were witnesses, and it was like he asked like four girls before one finally tried to help him, you know, because he yeah. plays the victim. Um, Denise Nashland, which was the second woman that was at Lake Sammamish. Nancy Wilcox, whose body was never found. Melissa Smith. Laura Aim. Carol Deranch, who survived. That was the one he kidnapped in Colorado, mm-hmm. who was a witness. Debbie Kent, who was a high schooler that was abducted and murdered just a few hours after Deranch survived. Jesus. There was another unknown hitchhiker whose body was never recovered. 18-year-old Carol Venezuela and an unidentified female skeleton found in Washington together. Bunny never confessed to these, but he is very much suspected in their murders. Yeah. 1975. God, that was all in one year. That was all 74. Jesus. 1975, Karen Campbell, which was the murder in Colorado. Julie Cunningham... Body never recovered. Denise Oliverson, body never recovered. Lynette Culver, body never recovered. Suzanne Curtis, body never recovered. Melanie Cooley, in this one, Bundy's the prime suspect. She was also found in Colorado. Mm-hmm. Then in 1978, so for the 76 and 77, he's in prison. Yeah. So in 78 are the Chi Omega girls, Lisa Levy, Margaret Bowman, who were killed, Karen Chandler, who survived, Kathy Kleiner, who survived, 
Cheryl Thomas, who survived, and Kimberly Leach, who was the 12-year-old who was killed. And obviously, Bundy remains suspect in several unsolved homicides. Yeah. And like I said, he's likely responsible for a whole lot more. In 1987, so a couple of years before he was executed, he did confide that there were some murders that he would never talk about because they were committed too close to home, too close to family, or involved victims who were very young. So he didn't want to talk about them. So he basically even admits Ugh. that there are more than There's what There's more than what, yeah. To. Jesus. So that is the story of Ted Bundy, who is the epitome of an American serial killer. Yeah. The one who defined the category and who is unfortunately someone that will always be known and always be talked about. And we will never know the full extent of his fucking rampage. Uh, yeah. That, um... So there was actually a lot more about Bundy that I knew or I, I remember told you knowing, you would. But there's a lot of it that I never knew. Well, Again, and- I'm also just really horrified at the, the Chai Omega attack. For so yeah. like that is horrifying. Well, and there was it was actually a bit difficult for them to originally connect that to his murders in Colorado, Utah, yeah. and Washington, Oregon, because it was so different. Like it wasn't yeah. the same. Like he wasn't luring them to his car. He wasn't he as broke in. Careful. No, no, no. He was like literally I know I've said the word rampage so many times, but I can't think of a better word. Like yeah. he was on a murderous rampage and like he like went in the house and like bludgeoned these women to death and just did That's absolutely just horrific things to them. He is fucking horrifying. I understand why you've been a Kind of terrified this entire week during your research. Literally, because every night I would do a little bit of research or watch a little bit of a documentary. And I go outside and I'm walking Charlie and I'm like, I don't want to be out here by myself. Like, well, it's just fucking scary. Literally, you're doing research over a killer who, A, lures his victims like an eye and stuff. And B, will break into their houses or apartments and, like, murder them in their sleep. So, uh, yeah. Safe nowhere. Also... Lock your damn doors, y'all. This is why I don't date, because anyone could be a Ted Bundy. I mean, okay, anyone could be a Ryan Gosling, though, so. But there's only one Ryan Gosling. (laughs) Dating is just roulette. (laughs) Either you live or you don't. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Uh, No, I'm just kidding. Not where I was going with it. Well, but yes, no, like seriously, this one, doing this research has gotten to my head way more I'm having trouble putting it into words because it's so scary how obsessed people are with him. And that's why we have so much information. That's horrifying. Like, there is so much more information than what I just said. Like, so much more. I didn't go into detail in a lot of parts because literally when I joked at the beginning, five hours... I actually could have talked for that long. Uh, nope. And um, didn't think uh, our listeners would want to, or you would want to listen to five hours of that because it's way too much. Trust me, um, I did it this week. Yeah, I feel like um, the past hour, hour and a half, however long it's been, has been uh, an, an, enough. Yeah. I'm good. Yeah. Because uh, I still have my case to jump into. 
Okay, but before you get into your case, we have got to get into the second bottle. Yes, we because do. Because that was heavy, and what you have coming, I know is going to be heavy. Uh, yeah. So. Well, because this is one of our episodes that you know who I'm doing. I do know who I, you're doing. I talked to you about it before. Yes. And, uh. It's not a surprise, and I'm, it's going to be a lot. It is. Well, and it, this one of the things, I mentioned it earlier but I don't, a lot of these like big serial killers and big true crime people, I don't know a lot about. You surprisingly know more about some of the mid popularity or low popularity crimes yeah. because you'll always come to me with, oh, have you heard about this? Or, um, oh, have you, did you read this? And I'm like, no. Mm. And you're really great about more of those. And then when it comes to, like, the heavy hitters, I'm like, oh, do you know about Jerry Brudos? Oh, let's talk about Ed Kemper. Oh, let me tell you something about Ted Bundy. And you're like, I literally know. Jerry Brudos? Oh, it's Brudos. Brudos. he is the foot fetish guy, so also active in the 70s. But he, like, killed a lot of women in his garage. He would, like, hang them up. Oh, my God. Like, he would take pictures of them. He was also... He would wear women's clothing. He had a foot fetish and a shoe fetish. Oh, my God. I'll okay. cover him sometime. He's fucked up. But that, see, perfect yeah. example. Yeah. Like, he's a pretty big one. Also, a lot of these come from the John Douglas book, Mindhunter. Oh, okay. Fair. That's how I know about a lot of these. Again, because literally the 70s, I'm glad I didn't live then because I would be harmed. I would never leave my home. And, but then I'd yeah. still have a chance of dying. So, it's, it's lose-lose. Well, I mean, kind of, I guess, pseudo intro in my case, it is also one from the 70s, because of course it fucking is. And this... I didn't realize that. I guess mm. I just forgot the years. Yeah. And For yours. In this case, uh, Ted Bundy was born in 42, right? 46. Well, this case is one that I, again, knew about-ish. Yeah. But the things I knew about weren't... Like, as I dove in my research, it was, those were the, like, wow, shock factor things. But actually getting into the case, they're so small, like, don't matter. The case (laughs) I'm doing is John Wayne Gacy. Fucking John Wayne Gacy. And one Mm. of the big things that everyone talks about, or that is, like, his calling card, is him as a clown. It totally is. And that is involved, and I'll go into it a little bit later, but... Not really. It's not as big of a deal as people make it sound no. like it is. Because, like, when I vaguely heard about it before doing any research, I'm picturing this guy who is, like, murdering people as a clown. And that's not... It's not it that's at not all. That's not it. I, no. It's so much more fucked up than that. It is. So, the sources I used were... I did not use as much sources as you did at all. Uh, <laughs> but I used Wikipedia... All that's interesting and biography. I like that site. All that's interesting. It all keeps interesting. It keeps coming it. up. Yeah. And it is interesting. That is true. And it's all the things. But the Wikipedia page for John Wayne Gacy is insanely detailed. The one for Bundy is too. And to be completely honest, this is one of the times where I was like, you know what? I want to find other sources than Wikipedia. And once I got to Wikipedia, I was like, oh, I've already found all of this. Because it's literally the same information. It's pretty much everywhere. Some have less, some have more. But, like, what I'm saying is, like, the Wikipedia articles generally have absolutely everything you need. Yeah. 
For the most part, unless it's a smaller case that you need to dive into local news, Wikipedia is good. It is. And it has all the sources at the bottom to where if you need more details on a certain aspect, you go to that one. Anyway, I'm going to jump into John Wayne Gacy after I take a gulp of wine. Yes, take a gulp of wine. Also, this Seven Deadly Zins is bomb as shit. Isn't it? I told you. There's a reason it's one of my fucking favorite wines. I guess before, um, honestly, before moving to Austin, I really didn't drink good wine. I know. I mean, I drank, there were a couple wines, like Columbia Crest, it's a cheaper one, it's six to eight dollars a bottle, one of my favorites. It is an amazing Washington cab, and you like Columbia Crest too. I do, I do. I've turned Brittany onto that one, and I, Washington wines obviously have a special place in my heart. Yeah. Uh, but I, because I was like, I would get, I would find a wine I liked and I would get that. Yeah. And now I'm like, wow, had I gone up to the $12 range? That's the sweet okay. spot. That's yeah. the sweet spot. Well, because when we started this podcast, pretty much for the first 10, 15 episodes or so, our wines were all under $10. Yeah. Because that was, you know, we did Shaw, we... We made a point when we did Apothic Brew, which was like a $14 bottle, to be like, you know, this one's pretty expensive. I know. And now we're like, this one's 12 Get it. It's not bad. Yeah. But it's really not, like, it's so good. Well, and one thing, I didn't say this earlier about the label, and y'all can see this picture on our Instagram, but you see how there's the seven, and they turn and it, it into it a, a Z. Z? Yeah. I love it. And then it actually has the seven deadly uh, sins on here. Wrath, greed, envy, vanity, sloth, gluttony, and lust. Fun. It's just so fucking good. Yeah. If you haven't tried it, y'all, go get it. Yes. Okay. So with that, John Wayne Gacy. John Wayne Gacy. All right. I'm ready. I have my wine. Me too. So John Wayne Gacy Jr. uh, was born in Chicago on March 17th of 42 to John Stanley Gacy, his dad, and Marion Elaine Robinson, his mother. And as a kid... Gacy was pretty overweight and he was not athletic. Uh-huh. He had a heart condition that kept him from playing sports. Oh. And so he was, I mean, also he's just a fucking kid. Yeah. He was really close to his two sisters and his mom, but he had a really difficult relationship with his dad. Oh, yeah. His dad was an alcoholic and was physically abusive to his wife oh, and children. God. Oh, God. He's a piece of shit. That sounds like it. I mean, so was John Gacy, but... I mean, true. So, throughout his childhood, Gacy really wanted to make his dad proud of him, but he never was able to get his approval. Yeah. And this friction was constant throughout his childhood and his adolescence. So, one of his earliest childhood memories was his father beating him with a (gasps) leather belt at the age of four... For, oh. Because he messed around with some, like, car engine pieces that his dad had assembled. And yeah. he was just four-year-old, like, playing with these things. as it beats him with a belt. Another time, his dad struck him across the head with a broomstick, <gasps> which knocked him out. Like, it left him unconscious. Yeah. Jesus! And his dad would just regularly belittle him and often compared him unfavorably to his sister's. And would accuse him of being just dumb and stupid. My God. Yeah. What a 
freaking abusive dad. Yeah, no, dad's a fucking monster. So when he was six, he stole a toy truck from a neighborhood store because he's a six-year-old. He wants a toy. He's going to grab a toy. Yeah. And his mom made him walk back to the store, return the toy, and apologize to the owners. Yeah. Totally fair. It's kind of how you treat that. His mom then tells his dad, who subsequently beats him with a belt as punishment. Yeah. And after this, uh, Gacy's mom attempted to shield him from his father's verbal and physical abuse. Oh, that's what it took for her to be like, oh, yeah. Oh, no. But all that did was succeed in him getting more accusations from his dad that he was a sissy or a mama's boy and he's probably going to grow up queer. Like, oh my God. Yeah. yeah. So, in 1949, his dad was informed that Gacy and another boy had been caught sexually fondling a young girl. Oh. Which, at this point, Gacy is seven. Yeah. So, it's, in my mind, much more likely that it's just child curiosity and stuff. Um, But, yeah. So, as punishment, his father whipped him. Um, and that same year, Gacy was actually molested by a family friend. Oh my god, his childhood is fucked up. Uh, Yeah. This family friend was a contractor who would take Gacy out on rides in his truck and then fondle him. Oh my god. And at seven, maybe eight, between six and eight, depending on the time of year and stuff, um... He made the decision and he never told his dad about the incidents because he was afraid his father would blame him. And then beat him more. Yeah. Which sounds probably pretty true. Yeah, it sounds like that is likely what would have happened. So in school, Gacy, he was an average student. He had few friends and he was an occasional target for bullying by his classmates and the neighborhood kids because he's, you know, this little tubby kid with not a lot of friends um during the fourth grade he began to experience blackouts and he occasionally actually became hospitalized because of them and seizures oh and he again was hospitalized in 1957 for a burst appendix so Later, Gacy would estimate that he spent almost a year in the hospital for these episodes between the ages of 14 and 18. And he, you know, he really attributed that to the decline in his grades and just him not being able to finish high school. Yeah. Um, His father, on the other hand, said that these episodes... Or just another effort to gain sympathy and attention. Of course he did. Yeah. And he openly would accuse his son of just faking his condition at as he's fucking laying in a hospital bed. Yeah. His dad's like, get up. You're faking it. Grow a pair. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Oh, my God. You know how people in Chicago sound. Uh, (laughs) Right. And although his mom, his sisters, and close friends never doubted his illness, uh, his, like, medical issues and his condition, it was never conclusively diagnosed. 
Oh. They could never figure out why he was having these seizures and blackouts and everything. Yeah. One of his friends in high school, like, recalled several instances in which his dad would ridicule or beat Gacy just without being provoked or anything. Yeah. Uh, on one occasion in 1957, that friend witnessed an incident um, in which Gacy's father just began shouting at his son for no reason oh. and then began hitting him. Oh. Uh, when Gacy's mother attempted to intervene, uh, she was st- struck too. And the friend Damn. also pointedly recalled that Gacy simply just put up his hands to defend himself and that he never struck his father back during the physical altercations. Wow. I feel like that would be hard to not fight back at some point, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, when enough is enough. Yeah. But on that same hand, he's also been doing this for, I mean, since basically birth. Well, like, I know. It's, just and a it's part what of Gacy knows. Him. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that is just, that's punishment. Yeah. That's getting in trouble. Yeah. So, in 1960, when he was 18, his dad bought him a car, and the title of the vehicle was in his dad's name until Gacy completed his monthly repayments for it. Yeah. So, these payments took several years to complete. I mean, it's a car. Yeah. Yeah. And his dad would confiscate the keys to the car if Gacy didn't do exactly as his dad said. Yeah. So, that was his thing. If you... If he had to, like, do chores or do whatever dad wanted, didn't Any... do it, no more keys. No more keys. And on one occasion in 62, so Gacy's 20, or yeah. around at this point, uh, Gacy bought an extra set of keys after his dad confiscated the original set. And in response to this, his dad removed the distributor cap from the vehicle and withheld it for three days. Oh, my God. Gacy said that as a result of this, he felt totally sick and drained. And when his dad finally replaced the cap, he left the family home and he drove to Vegas. And oh. in Vegas. He was like, bye. Yeah. Going to Vegas. He was like, I'm out. Fuck y'all. Um, so when he was in Vegas, he found work uh, with the ambulance service before he transferred to work in a, as a mortuary attendant. Oh. And he was actually a mortuary attendant for three months before he returned to Chicago. Okay. So, in this job, as when he's a mortuary attendant, he slept in a cot behind the embalming room. Oh, shit. And no. In his role, he observes the morticians embalming dead bodies. And he later confessed that on one evening when he was alone, he climbed into the coffin of a deceased teenage male. No. And just embraced and caressed the body before he was like, what the fuck am I doing? Um, what the fuck is he doing? Uh, yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know how to respond to that because what the actual fuck? Yeah. So, Ew. yeah, I, yeah, yeah, no, I don't know how to don't respond either. Don't disgrace a body like that. Yeah, don't climb into coffins. Just, that's Just a, I think that's a it. good thing to live by. Don't climb into coffins. Don't climb into coffins. So, this shock that he had after realizing what he had done, 
uh, prompted him to call his mom the next day and ask if his dad would allow him to return home. His dad agreed, and that day, Gacy packed his shit up and drove back to Chicago to live with the family. Okay. So once he got back, um, despite the fact that he did not graduate high school, so I don't know how this worked out, but he enrolled in Northwestern Business College, and he actually wound up graduating from there in 1963. After graduating, he took a management training position with the Nunbush Shoe Company. Okay. And this is when he starts kind of moving up in the, not really corporate world, but just like the jobs world. In the job world. Yeah. So in 64, the shoe company transferred him to Springfield, Illinois. So in the middle of the state, away from Chicago a couple right. hours. Yeah. Uh, to work as a salesman. And he was eventually promoted to manager. And in March of 64, he became engaged to Marilyn Myers, uh, who was a co-worker in the department that he managed. Oh! And after nine months of dating, they married in September of 64. So, real quick. Yeah, say so that's fast, man. That's fast. Yeah. Marilyn's father subsequently bought three KFC restaurants in Waterloo, Iowa. Oh. And Gacy and Marilyn moved to Waterloo so that he could manage the restaurants. Can I just say how good KFC sounds right now? It does. Um, Can I just say that for our work Thanksgiving dinner we had today, one of my teammates brought Popeye's chicken and it was perfect huh not what i would think of but i like it she was like i don't want to cook but i want to bring a family meal so popeyes and i'm like yes like more power to her that's awesome no i'm i was so into it i was like i'm giving me a drumstick <laughs> this is a good spot to have this because this is maybe the last like oh, okay talk about him working for kfc you know, light moment that we're going to have. I know. And that's why I mentioned that it sounds really good right now. Because I know we're about to get real dark and I'm not going to want to eat KFC. That is very true. Yeah. To anyway. get to the very true part. Yeah. So Gacy, you know, took these jobs, you know, managing these KFCs with the understanding that they'd move into Marilyn's parents' home, which the parents didn't live at anymore. Like they owned this home. Marilyn and oh. Gacy are going to move in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's their place to live. That's where they live. So, during his time with Marilyn, he joined the local JCs, which is also known as the United States Junior Chamber. It's a leadership training and civic organization. Yeah. So, it's like just a group of people who want to do business shit. Like, I don't fucking know. It's the business shit people group. Yeah. B-S-P-C. That's their P- commercial. That's a G. free fucking jingle. P- Damn it, G. I said C. You know what? <laughs> committee. We're changing it. Committee? All yeah. right. Business shit people committee. So that right. my jingle not works. Because my jingle would not work with a G. C and G, totally different sounds. Sure. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, so he joins this and he actually became a tireless worker for the organization and was named the key man for it in April of 64. Of course he was. 
So he, at this point, is very, like, I mean, he's a solid-ass worker. Like, he got his degree, he did this management trainee program, he is managing these KFCs, he's a part of this organization, he's doing yeah. really well at it. Like, that's who he is. That's who he is, yeah. So, this oh. same year, Gacy had a homosexual experience. And according to him, he had this experience after one of his colleagues in the JCs gave him a bunch of drinks, you know, invited him over to spend the evening on his sofa. Yeah. And then his colleague uh, gave him oral sex while he was drunk. Okay. Which, just so y'all, if, if you're not aware of this, it's rape. Just by the way, don't give people drinks so you can sleep with them. It's rape. Yeah, don't do that. But, um... In this case, it does seem like uh, Gacy was into that. So, cool. And then in 65, so the following year, Gacy had risen to the position of vice president of the Springfield JCs. Oh. So he's, like, getting pretty high up in this organization. Yep, he is. And he was also named the third most outstanding JC within the entire state of Illinois. There you go. Number three. Mm Mm-hmm. In 1966, uh, that was when he actually began to manage the three KFC restaurants that his father-in-law had purchased. Yeah. That year, his wife gave birth to two... Or, starting that year, I guess, his (laughs) wife gave birth to two children. (laughs) So, Um, not twins, just two in the same year. Yeah. Well, two, one right after... His son, Michael, was born in February of 66. His daughter, Christine, was born in March of 67. So basically, basically one right after the other. Yes. Which, like, I'm just saying her poor vagina. She was pregnant for, like, a long time. Yeah. She had, like, a three-month break where she wasn't pregnant. Basically. Oh. Oh. No. So, at this point, Gacy would describe his life, or this period of his life, as perfect. Yeah. You know, and he also, at this point, had gotten the long-sought approval of his dad. Oh, finally. So, at one point in July of 66, his parents visited him in Iowa, and his dad privately apologized to him for the physical and mental abuse he inflicted on him, and proudly informed him, son, I was wrong about you. Which I'm like, oh, cool. Doesn't make up for the physical and mental abuse. No. That he suffered. So, sorry. And also the, I was wrong about you. As if he, I don't know, had been gay or a sissy, would have been like, I was right about you. Fuck off. Well, and also, I was wrong about you. That's putting it on Gacy. I yeah. mean, like, you turned out better than I thought you would. Ugh, I fucking, not, I was a monster for beating you. This yeah. stuff, you exceeded my expectations. Ugh. I hate it. Yeah. So, while all this good shit is fine, is happening for Gacy, there's also a seedy side to the JC organization in Waterloo. Oh, and what's this going is, on? Well, this involves wife swapping, prostitution, oh my God, pornography, this kind of stuff? and drug use. Oh, yeah. So I mean, it's, it's a, one it's of those. A, it's a group for all those things. It's, I mean, shit. The, it's fucking 
wealthy white men who think they're powerful. So, yeah. Which is in the 60s. For all the other stuff. Yeah. So, Gacy was very involved in a lot of these activities. He regularly cheated on his wife with local sex workers. And he was known to have opened a quote unquote club in his basement where he let his employees drink and play pool and in all... his basement yeah uh weird. he's fucking weird so and although he employed teenagers that were both uh young men and young women he would only socialize with the young men and a lot of them were given alcohol before he made sexual advances towards them. Yeah. Which, if they rebuffed him, they were like, whoa, no, 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 no. He would claim they were like jokes or a test of their morals. Wow. Uh, yeah. So in August of 67, Gacy committed his first known sexual assault of a teenage boy. Um, the victim was a 15-year-old named Donald Voorhees. Uh, who is the son of a fellow JC. So Gacy... Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah, no, he... And we'll get more into this when we get into the murders, but when you mentioned Ted Bundy, all of his victims were, like, unrelated, did not know him, like, were out there. Uh, John Wayne Gacy's very different, because a lot of his victims were very close to him. And he also had random people. So he did both. It was like, no one is safe and no one is special. Uh, yeah. So Gacy lured Voorhees into his house by uh, promising to show him porn. Which, I mean, he's 15. He's gonna be like, yes. Yes. Um, so Gacy gave him a bunch of alcohol and persuaded him to give him oral sex. Okay. Uh, over the following months... Several other teenagers were sexually abused in a similar manner. Oh my god. And one of whom Gacy encouraged to have sex with his own wife before he blackmailed him into giving him oral sex. Wait, so he was like, you should have sex with my wife. And he was like, just kidding, give me a blowjob. Yeah. I don't know if he actually gay... Or if, like, the the victim actually did have sex with his wife or not. I uh, feel like he, no. He also convinced several other teenagers that he was conducting a homosexual experiments with interests of scientific research. Oh, study. yeah, totally. Um, and it's each of science. them were paid up to $50 because they're just study participants. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, also, good to know, if anyone comes to you being like, oh, uh, suck my dick, it's for scientific research, Not don't do true. it. true. Don't, don't do it. Don't do it. So in March of 68, Voorhees told his dad that Gacy had sexually assaulted him, and his dad immediately went to the police, and Gacy was arrested oh. and charged with oral sodomy. Oh. And... Uh, oral sodomy in relation to Voorhees and attempted assault of another 16-year-old named Edward Lynch. So Gacy absolutely vehemently denied the charges and he demanded to take a polygraph test. Yeah. This request was granted, although the results indicated that Gacy was nervous when he denied any wrongdoing in relation to uh, Voorhees or Lynch. Which, again, we've talked about this before. 
Polygraphs don't mean shit. Not reliable. But I'm just weird that he was like, I will take a polygraph and then failed it. Yeah. So Gacy publicly denied any wrongdoing and insisted the charges against him were politically motivated as uh, Voorhees Sr., the dad, had opposed Gacy's nomination for appointment as president of the Iowa JCs. Uh-huh. So he's like, no, 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 no. I did not do this. Obviously, he is just trying to get me back. He did not want me in this position. Whatever. Yeah. Several of his fellow JCs found Gacy's story credible, though. Yeah. And they rallied to support him. Oh, but God. on May 10th of 1968, Gacy was indicted on the sodomy charge. Also, just want to let you know, the sodomy charge charge of sodomy being illegal. Yeah. Not of sexual assault or rape. Oh my god, sodomy. it was just a sodomy. Yeah. What the fuck? Which was illegal to like 2001, I believe. Yeah, no, it was far more recent than we would like to think. Uh, yep. So, on August 30th of 1968, Gacy persuaded one of his employees who was an 18-year-old named Russell Schroeder, mm-hmm. to physically assault Voorhees in an attempt to discourage him from testifying against him in the trial. So Schroeder agreed to lure Voorhees into a secluded spot, spray mace in his face, and beat him. Oh my god. Gacy promised to pay Schroeder 300 bucks if he followed through on it. Okay. And in early September, he did. So oh my God. he lured Voorhees, uh, sprayed mace into his face that Gacy had supplied to him, and then beat him, all the while shouting that he was not going to testify against Gacy, or he was not to testify against Gacy. Holy so dokey. Voorhees managed to escape and immediately reported this to the police, obviously. Yes, that was the right move. And he identified Schroeder as his attacker. And Schroeder was arrested the following day. And initially, Schroeder was like, I didn't do anything. I'm not involved. He later confessed to having assaulted Voorhees and said that he had done so because Gacy had requested it. And Gacy was again arrested and additionally charged in relation to hiring Schroeder. And his wife's just like being there? We're getting there. Okay. So on September 12th, Gacy was ordered to undergo a psychiatric evaluation, and two doctors examined him over a period of 17 days mm-hmm. and concluded that he had an antisocial personality disorder, and which is a disorder that incorporates constructs such as sociopathy and psychopathy. And it was unlikely that he would benefit from any kind of therapy or medical treatment. And his behavior pattern was likely to bring him into conflict with society. Mm -hmm. They also concluded that he was mentally competent to stand trial. Uh, Okay, yeah. So Gacy pled guilty to one count of sodomy in relation to the charges filed against him by Donald Voorhees. But he pled not guilty to the other charges that were lodged against him. And in front of the judge, he contended that he and Voorhees had indeed engaged in sexual relations. But 
he insisted that Voorhees had offered sexual services to him and oh. that he'd acted out of curiosity. You know, he's just trying to, just trying to teach this up. young man things and learn more about himself. Yeah, no, fuck no. you. No. So he was convicted on December 3rd of 68, again, of sodomy. Cut. That's it. That's what Cut. he was convicted of. Um, and sentenced to 10 years in the prison. Oh. So. I feel on... like I didn't realize he was in prison mm-hmm. at the beginning. So on the day he was convicted and sentenced, his wife petitioned for divorce and requested possession of the couple's home, property, and sole custody of the kids and then alimony payments. Yeah. And the court ruled in her favor and the divorce was finalized September 18th of 1969 and Gacy never saw her or his children again. <gasps> oh my God. Yeah. Whoa. I did not realize that. You know, sometimes I get John Wayne Gacy and Dennis Rader confused in my head just because of the whole family aspect. Mm-hmm. How Dennis Rader just hid everything from his family. Because but... Dennis Rader is BTK? Yeah. Okay. On Christmas Day of 1969, uh-huh. Gacy's father died from cirrhosis of the liver. Oh, but he wasn't sad, yeah? Well... Mm, he oh, was no. so he wasn't told that his father had died until two days after and when he heard the news he collapsed on the floor sobbing uncontrollably and had to be supported by prison staff so although his dad was this monster who like beat him and abused him yeah they he had spent a connection his, well he spent his whole life trying to trying to, to impress him. him like that was yeah so, I mean, yeah. And Gacy requested that he could get compassionate leave from prison, supervised, to attend his dad's funeral in Chicago. Yeah. But this was denied. That's one of those things that I'm like, really? You're yeah. going to deny someone of that? Yeah. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, which is not the sentiment I want to put towards that. But it's like, that only happens once. Yeah. So on June 18th of 1970, after serving 18 months of his 10-year sentence, Gacy was granted parole with 12 months probation. Oh, 18 months? Yeah. That's after it? 18 months, the 10-year sentence. No, no, yep. no. Why? Uh, yeah, he was, I mean, he was a model prisoner when he was in okay, there. Okay, well, but that doesn't yeah. mean you could cut it down to like, you're going to serve... 1.5%, eh, 1.2% of your fucking sentence. Basically. I mean, Actually, not like 10%. 10. But, yeah. So Yeah, you're right. 10. I can 10, do math. 15, whatever. You know. Um, so, as part of the conditions of his probation, he did have to relocate to Chicago to live with his mom. Okay. So, on February 12th of 71, so the following year, Gacy was charged with sexually assaulting a teenage boy. Oh my god, again? Again. Uh, The boy had claimed that Gacy lured him into his car at the Chicago Greyhound Terminal and drove him to his home where he attempted to force him into sex. Unfortunately, the complaint was dismissed when the victim failed to appear in court. (gasps) Oh no! You have to show up! Yeah. So, the Iowa Board of Parole did not learn of this incident, which violated his parole. 
Um, and eight months after this, in October of 71, his parole ended. And the following month, records of his previous criminal convictions in Iowa were sealed. Oh. So with um, help from his mom, uh, Gacy bought a house in Norwood Park Township. Okay. And the address of this house is 8213 West Somerdale Avenue, which is the Gacy house. It's the Gacy house, and I hate it. Yeah. So if y'all don't know this case, you're about to know why that address is a Yeah, why that's a thing. thing. So on June 22nd of 72, he was arrested and charged with battery and reckless conduct in response to a complaint that was filed by a victim named Jackie D., Oh. And Jackie had informed police that Gacy had impersonated a police officer, flashed a sheriff's badge, lured him into his car, and forced him to perform oral sex. Oh my god. The charges were later dropped after uh, the complainant attempted to blackmail Gacy Mm. into paying him money in exchange for dropping the charges. Don't fucking do that. No, don't do that. So, Gacy, who'd been working as a cook, soon quit his job and started his own construction business. PDM contractors. He just, like, bounces around to such random such things. random fucking jobs. Super random jobs. He's got his own, his own thing now. His own construction business. PDM contractors. All right. Here we go. So, in 73, Gacy and a teenage employee of PDM traveled to Florida to look at some property that Gacy had purchased. On the first night in Florida, Gacy raped him in their hotel (gasps) room. Oh my god! And as a result of this, the victim refused to stay in the same hotel room as Gacy and instead slept on the beach. Yeah, Yeah, I don't blame him. Nope. I don't blame him. And once they returned to Chicago... The employee drove to Gacy's house um, when Gacy was in his front yard and beat him. He drove to his house and he just fucking kicked just Gacy's ass. Just wailed at him. And Gacy's mother-in-law stopped him from continuing to attack Gacy and, you know, the victim he drove away. And when Gacy's wife asked, because I forgot to mention... Gacy has another wife now. I was about to say, wait, I thought he was... Okay, so this is wife number two. This is wife number two. They uh, divorce very soon. for Like, mutually divorce. Oh. But um, she asked him, she's like, why the fuck did he just attack you? And Gacy was just like, oh, um, I had refused to pay him for just some really poor quality work. Oh. My. Yeah. God. So one thing that's really important to know about Gacy is he's really well-liked in his neighborhood. And he's really active in the community. He's the kind of guy who's, he's hosting the annual summer parties and barbecues. And he's, you know, giving back to the community. He's really into that. And through his membership in a local town club... He became aware of a Jolly Joker clown club. Mm. And the this members. This is where the clown comes this in. This is where the clown comes in. And the members of this club would regularly perform at fundraising events and parades, in addition to volunteering to entertain, like, children that were in the hospital. And by late 1975, Gacy had actually joined the Jolly Jokers and he created his own characters. Oh my God. Pogo the Clown. And Patches the Clown. 
Wait, what was the first one? Pogo. Pogo and Patches. Those were his clown characters. What? I hate it. Yep. And he's known to have performed as Pogo or Patches at a bunch of local parties, Democratic Party functions, charitable events, and children's hospitals. No fucking way. Yep. And that's the clown thing. But also... Which, yeah, that clown... has nothing to do with his murders. No. Like, that's the thing. Is like the clown like thing. That's fucking creepy. It and is. weird. But literally what I just said... That's, that's it. The, that's the beginning and end of the clown thing. Like, that's, that's what it is. Oh, my God. Yeah. So now I'm going to jump into John Wayne Gacy's murders. Oh, my God. We're here. You have had, you've already told like so many fucked up things. That, and I'm not even to the murders. No, you're not even to the murders. And it's not that I forgot, but at the same time, I was just like, this is the story. This is the yeah. messed up. Yeah, that was you just the ha- background and his like that was the assaults and stuff. That yeah. was the preface. Now it's time for the novel. You know. God damn it. Yeah. So on January 2nd of 1972, Gacy picks up a 16 year old named Timothy Jack McCoy. From the Chicago Greyhound bus terminal. So, again, he's still prowling there. Yeah. And Gacy took him uh, on a sightseeing tour of Chicago and then drove him to his home with the promise that, you know. So, this is just like a random, sorry, this is just a random kid that he picked up. Yeah, random kid. And he's like sightseeing tour. He's like, hey, let me show you Chicago. The kid's traveling from Michigan to Omaha. Okay. And, you know, he has like an overnight stop in Chicago and Gacy's like, here, I'll. Show you around Chicago. Oh, you no. can spend the night at my place, and no. I'll take you back to the station in the morning. People never, never, don't fucking do that. Never accept something like this. Hashtag don't climb into a coffin. Don't climb into a car with Gacy or don't anyone. Like climb d- don't. into a car of someone you don't know. Like there's a difference in people you meet that are fun to hang out with when you travel, and people you meet while you travel that are going to kill you. Yeah. I mean, obviously there's a difference. That was just such a stupid statement. But what I'm saying is like, you can tell the difference. You can. The behavior is like, oh, let's grab a drink and oh, hop into my car. Super different things. Yeah. So the next morning, Timothy McCoy, he gets up early and he's going to make Gacy breakfast because he's really thankful. He got to spend the night here. Um, Oh God. He got out eggs and bacon. He set the table for two. And then he walks up the stairs to wake up Gacy, um, and he he's still holding the knife from, like, cutting the bacon, I guess. Yeah. And, um... Which is a weird thing to carry up into the room, but Yeah, okay. he doesn't realize he hasn't put it down or whatever. Not realizing that, um, no harm was intended, that, uh, Timothy was not going to attack him, Gacy see, wakes up, sees the knife, and attacks him. Stabs him over and over and kills him. He then buries the body in the crawl space beneath his home (gasps) and covers the grave in concrete. So Wait, what? He covers it in concrete? Like this this little corner area or something? Yeah, he puts him in his crawl space and just covers his body in concrete. Oh my god. This murder... Granted, uh, the story of these events is what Gacy said happened. Right. So up for interpretation. Yep. But... If that was true, you know, this would have been a mistake. He thought he was going to be attacked, whatever. But this instilled in Gacy the ultimate thrill that he would would crave for the rest of his life. 
he was like, actually, that was amazing. I yeah. want to do that more. He said that immediately after Fuck. killing McCoy, he no. felt totally drained. But he noted that he experienced a mind-numbing orgasm as he killed McCoy. Oh, God. And he reali- he said that that's when I realized death is the ultimate thrill. Oh, sick. My, oh, my God. Yeah. Sorry, I have, like, gaping, like, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. My face right now. So, Gacy said the second time he committed murder was in January of 1974, and the victim was believed to have been an unidentified teenager with uh, medium brown hair who was probably between 14 and 18, and Gacy strangled him before stowing his body in his closet uh, before burying him. So, my case was the disappearance of all the women Yours is the disappearance of all the men, literally around the same time. Uh, yeah. So, Gacy would later state that fluid leaked out of uh, this victim's mouth and nose when he was stored in the closet as he's decomposing. Yeah. And it stained his carpet. So, because of that, Gacy started regularly stuffing cloth rags (gasps) or his victim's own underwear in their mouths so they wouldn't leak yeah. as they decomposed. Mentioned earlier, a lot of his victims he knew. They weren't so just a lot of these strangers. I'm sorry. He's married at this time, yeah? Um, He is not. Wait. Oh, the second wife they'd already the gotten divorced. The second wife they had divorced. Oh, okay. I was like, yeah. uh, how is he hiding this from yeah, someone? They, they divorced shortly before uh, his murder. All this began. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, but again, he, a lot of these victims he did not know. They were strangers to him. A lot of his victims he did know. He knew them. And he knew them because a lot of the workforce for his PDM contractor's company, you know, the company yeah. he owns, were high school students and young men. Oh, no. And one of them was 15-year-old Anthony Antonucci, whom Gacy had hired in May of 75. Then in July of 75, so just like two months after he got hired, Gacy went to his home when he was alone, uh, and he had injured his foot at work the day prior. So Gacy's like, oh, I'm going to go and check check up on him. So Gacy gave him alcohol and, you know, got him drunk, wrestled him to the floor and cuffed him, handcuffed (gasps) him. Behind his back. The handcuff that was on Antonucci's right wrist was a little loose. And Antonucci was able to free his arm from the handcuff after Gacy left the room. And when Gacy returned, Antonucci, who was on his high school wrestling team... Yeah. ...pounced on him and wrestled Gacy to the floor. Oh my god. He got possession of the handcuff key and he cuffed Gacy's hands behind his back. Oh my god. Gacy is screaming at him with threats. And then he, you know, he calms down and he promises that he'll leave if Antonucci removes the handcuffs. Oh no, Antonucci, don't do it. He, Antonucci agrees and Gacy left the house. Oh, I thought it was going to be a different outcome. No, not, this one wasn't. Oh my Uh, god. This one, Antonucci survived. So, uh, he later recalled that Gacy had told him, like, while he was laying on the floor, that not only are you the only one who got out of the cuffs, but you got them on me. 
This ain't the first fucking time he done this. No. Oh, God. So, one week after attacking Antonucci, on July 26th of 75, another of Gacy's employees, 17-year-old John Butkovich, disappeared. Uh The day before his disappearance, Butkovich had threatened Gacy over two weeks of outstanding pay. And Gacy would later admit to luring Butkovich to his home. Gacy conned him into allowing his wrists to be cuffed behind his back. Don't know how. Don't know how that happened. Um, At which point, Gacy strangled him to death and buried his body under the concrete floor of his garage. Oh my god, so different space under the house. Mm Mm-hmm. So, Butkovich's car was found abandoned in a parking lot with his wallet inside and the keys still in the ignition. And his father called Gacy, uh, who claimed, you know, he's happy to help search for him, but, you know, I'm sorry he's run away. Away to under my garage. Yeah. So, Gacy was questioned about Butkovich's disappearance and admitted that he and two friends had arrived at his apartment demanding Butkovich's overdue pay but claimed that all three of them had left after a compromise had been reached. And over the following three years, Butkovich's parents called police more than 100 times, urging them to investigate Gacy further. Yeah. They're like, no, we don't trust this guy. We have a feeling. Look into it. Yeah. But again, no evidence, no reason. Yeah. And again, he's similarly to Bundy. He's like an upstanding member of the community. Right, right. Like people, you know, I mean, does he still own the KFCs at this point or? I'm not sure. Well, and it's like upstanding citizen, not someone that they would pin this on. Mm -hmm. So this whole thing of deceiving young people, putting handcuffs on them became Gacy's uh, modus operandi. Yeah. You know, after giving them drinks, drugs, or just in general gaining their trust. Yeah. He'd get a pair of handcuffs, which he would persuade the victim into putting them on. hmm And when the victim, you know, was handcuffed and unable to free themselves, he'd then say something to the effect of, the trick is, you have to have the key before proceeding to rape and torture them. Oh, my God. Uh... He would finish with what he called the rope trick. I don't like it. By placing a rope over the victim's neck and tying a makeshift tourniquet until the victim was strangled to death. Oh my god. So, the majority of Gacy's murders were committed between 76 and 78, which he would refer to as his cruising years. That is two years, and I am so fucking scared about how many you're going to say happened in this period of time. Uh, well, you'll see. Yeah. So on April 6th of 76, Gacy abducted and murdered an 18-year-old named Daryl Sampson. Five weeks later, on May 14th, a 15-year-old named Randall Riffett disappeared while walking home from high school. He was gagged with a cloth, which caused him to die of asphyxiation. Hours, just hours after Rafet had been abducted, a 14-year-old named Samuel Stapleton vanished as he was walking home from his sister's apartment. Stop. It's like he finishes one and he goes and looks at the next age group and finishes another. Yep. So... Both Rafet and Stapleton were buried in the same grave in the crawlspace. The crawlspace of his house? Yeah. 
He's burying all of his victims in his house. Stop. That is so Mm. fucked up. On July 3rd of 76, Gacy killed a 17-year-old named Michael Bonin, uh, who disappeared while traveling from Chicago to Waukegan and was strangled and buried in the crawl space. God! Ten days later, a 16-year-old named William Carroll was murdered and buried directly beneath Gacy's kitchen. And Carroll may have been the first of four men that were known to have been murdered between June 13th and August 6th, who were uh, buried in a common grave that was beneath his kitchen and laundry room. So he's just like... One after the other at this point. Like, there was no space. Yeah. So, these three other guys that were buried with Carol were known to have been killed between June 13th and August 6th and were aged between 16 and 17. And the one of the group who was unidentified uh, was a male who was murdered between those same dates who had medium dark hair and was probably aged between 23 and 30. My God. And this unidentified victim was buried beneath the bodies of James Hawkinson and Rick Johnston. How many-ish are we up to at this point underneath his house? I'm not sure. I think around 10. That's okay. That's I'm trying to like semi-keep track, but that's so many. So, on July 26th of 76, Gacy employed an 18-year-old named David Cram, and on August 21st, Cram moved into his house. Oh! The following day, Gacy conned Cram into putting the handcuffs on while he was drunk. Stop! How? Does this guy convince these boys to do this? These men! I mean, if they're drunk, they're teenagers, it might even be as easy as, you know, hey, you put these handcuffs on, won't that be funny or something? I don't know. So after he has him handcuffed, Gacy tells him that he intends to rape him. Stop. And Cam, who had spent a year in the army, kicked Gacy in the face and freed himself from the handcuffs um, as Gacy was like laying on the ground. Good. And one month later, he's still living at the house, though. One month later, Gacy appears at his bedroom door with the intention to rape him again. Or the intention again to rape him. Yeah, yeah. Um, and told him, Dave, you really don't know who I am. Maybe it would be good if you give me what I want. Stop. So Cram resisted his attempts again. And Gacy left his bedroom. After this, Cram moved the fuck out of Gacy's home. Yeah. And left the job with PDM contractors. He was like, nope, fuck this. Not worth it. Although, shortly after Cram left, another employee of PDM contractors, 18-year-old Michael Rossi, moved into Gacy's house. Oh my god. So it's one after the other. Yep. Like, all his... Freaking co-workers that he hired. Yeah. Yeah. So two further unidentified men are estimated to have been killed between August and October of 76. Why is there no connection between these murders right now? I have no idea. Is it 
I, I just can't even comprehend why no one is paying attention to the fact that all these people are going missing and that they all work for him. Well, not all of these work for him, but so far quite a few. Well, yeah. then a majority. Yeah. That you, you would think that would be suspicion enough. Yeah. Well, even like two. Two people from the same business go and disappear. You're like, hmm. And then like, a third, and you're like, There's okay. something in common. Yeah. yeah. So on October 24th of 76, Gacy abducted and killed two teenage friends. They were named Kenneth Parker and Michael Marino. Both of them were strangled and buried in the same grave in the crawl space. God, no. Two days later, a 19-year-old employee of PDM contractors named William Bundy, no relation, I assume. (laughs) Oh, my uh, God. Disappeared after telling his family that he was going to go to a party. Uh, I two days. Mm-hmm. Bundy was also strangled and buried in the crawl space directly beneath Gacy's master bedroom. In December of '76, another PDM employee, who's 17-year-old Gregory Godzik, disappeared. And Godzik had actually only worked for PDM for three weeks before he disappeared. Wow. One month later, on January 20th of '77. John Sizik, who was a 19-year-old acquaintance of a couple names we've heard so far, Budkovich, Godzik, and Gacy, disappeared. Yeah. Sizik was lured to Gacy's house uh, on the pretext of selling him his car. Oh. And was murdered and buried in Gacy's crawl space directly above the body of Godzik. And a ring that he wore, which had his initials on it, Uh, was kept in a dresser in Gacy's bedroom. His little, like, um, treasure. Yeah. Gacy also kept his portable Motorola TV in his bedroom and sold the car uh, that he was trying to sell to Michael Rossi, who was the employee that was living with him. Yeah. So between December of 76 and March of 77... Gacy is known to have killed an unidentified young man who was probably around 25 or so. Okay. His body was buried in the crawl space beneath the body of a 20-year-old named John Prestige, whom Gacy had killed on March 15th. No. Two victims that were murdered on the same day in May of 76 were buried alongside this guy. Oh my god. This is... Such a level of fucked up that I can't even comprehend this. He's just, all he's doing is raping and murdering these boys. Yes. Like, that's literally all he's doing. In April oh of 77, God. Michael Rossi moved out of Gacy's home. Good. Like, it didn't say any reason. I I don't think he knew he any done. of this. He, he was, was like, oh, I'm going to get to my apartment. Like, I've saved up enough. I can get my own place. So in July of 77... Gacy killed a 19-year-old, Matthew Bowman, and he was buried in the crawl space with a tourniquet that was used to strangle him, (gasps) still knotted around his neck. Oh my god. Then, in August of 77, a clue emerged uh, regarding the disappearance of John Sizzik. Michael Rossi... The guy who he sold the car to, who used to live with Gacy, uh, was arrested for stealing gasoline from a service station while driving the car. The attendant, like, wrote down the plate number and police traced the car to Gacy's house. Yep, yep. And when Gacy was questioned, 
He told officers that Sizik had sold him the car back in February and explained to him that he needed money to leave town. And the police were like, that checks out and didn't pursue it any further. The police were at the fucking house where there are bodies everywhere. Yep. By the end of 77, Gacy is known to have murdered an additional six young men between the ages of 16 and 21. The first of the six victims, 18-year-old Robert Gilroy, was last seen alive in September of that year. Yeah. And he was actually the son of a Chicago police sergeant. Oh. And he was suffocated and buried in the crawl space. Oh. Ten days after Gilroy was last seen, a 19-year-old U.S. Marine named John Mowry disappeared, and he was strangled to death and buried in the crawl space uh, next to William Bundy. Stop this fucking crawl space. Mm -hmm. On October 17th, a 21-year-old named Russell Nelson disappeared. Nelson was killed by suffocation and was also buried in the crawl space. My God. I don't know how fucking big this crawl space is. I literally don't understand. Well, there are what? Like, we're, I feel like we're getting close to like 30 bodies down there, yeah? Uh, we're getting there. Yeah. And I guess if you put them right up against one another, yeah, you get way more than you want. Well, less than four weeks after Nelson's murder, a 16-year-old named Robert Winch was murdered and buried in the crawl space. And on November 18th, what a is 20... seriously sick fuck? Like, I can't uh, yeah. get over this. A 20-year-old father of one named Tommy Bowling uh-huh. disappeared after leaving a bar in Chicago. Both Winch and Bowling were strangled to death, and both oh, of them no, were buried together. in the crawl space beneath the hallway. Oh. Three weeks after the murder of Tommy Bowling, on December 9th, a 19-year-old U.S. Marine named David Tausma disappeared. Talsma was strangled with a ligature and buried in the crawl space as well. I literally feel like all you're saying are names, and in my head I'm just like, no, 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 no. He's just, he keeps just murdering these men. Like, that's, it's, yeah. Like, that's what he's doing. So on December 30th of 77, Gacy abducted a 19-year-old student named Robert Donnelly from a Chicago bus stop at gunpoint. Oh, my God. Uh, Gacy drove him, drove Donnelly home with him, raped him, tortured him with various devices. Oh, God. And repeatedly dunked his head into a bathtub filled with water until he passed out and then revived him. Oh, shit. So he's just torturing him. Wow. And Donnelly said like during this he was just like just please fucking kill me yes and gacy was like oh i'm getting there yeah oh my god so after several hours of this torture gacy drove donnelly to his place of work took the handcuffs from his wrists and released him donnelly reported him i have no idea Huh. Donnelly reported this assault and Gacy was questioned about it on January 6th. And he admitted to having a sex slave kind yeah. of relationship with Donnelly, yeah. but that everything was consensual. Oh, and God. the police believed him and no charges were filed. Because this was also oh, back in the God. times, it's similar to how um, Dahmer was. I mean, he yeah. just mentioned the fact to the, like, oh, I'm gay. And the police were like, whoa, okay, nope, I can't touch nope, that. Don't nope. worry. Nope. Mm-mm. A hard pass. And that's how Gacy's getting away with this, too. Oh, my God. So, 
one month later, Gacy killed a 19-year-old named William Kindred, who had disappeared in February of 78, after telling his fiance he was going to spend, you know, I'm going to go to a bar. Uh, Kindred was the final victim to be buried in Gacy's crawl space. Huh. And Gacy then began to dispose of his victims in the De Plains River. Oh my god, so he wasn't even done. He's, He's not done. Just different he just disposal. ran out of space. So and he, he would go to the river and dump their bodies? Yeah. And he oh had god. thought about putting them in his attic, but he was worried about the leakage, so he decided on the river. In March of 78, Gacy lured a 26-year-old named Jeffrey Rignal into his car. Okay. And once he got in the car, uh, Rignal was chloroformed. And driven to. Was this Gacy's the first house. time he did the chloroform thing? Maybe that we know. Maybe. So the only reason we know that he was this one was chloroform is I'll tell you in a sec. Oh okay. Um. So once Gacy drove him to his house, uh, he was raped and tortured with various instruments, including oh. lit candles and whips. <gasps> oh my god! And he was repeatedly chloroformed into unconsciousness. Rignal was then driven to Lincoln Park, where he was dumped unconscious, but alive. Yeah. And that's how we know about the chloroform, because he survived. And he actually oh wrote a book God. on his ex- on this. Yeah, on what happened. So, in 78, Gacy is disposing of his victims off of the I-55 bridge into the De Plaine River. And the first known victim to be thrown from the bridge was 20-year-old Timothy O'Rourke, who was killed in mid-June, and his body was found six miles downstream on June 30th. My God. On November 4th, Gacy killed a 19-year-old named Frank Landington, whose body was found in the De Plaine River on November 12th. Hmm. And less than three weeks later, on November 24th, 20-year-old James Mazzara disappeared after having Thanksgiving dinner with his family and his body was found December 28th. The cause of his death was suffocation through his own underwear being lodged (gasps) down his throat which plugged his airway and essentially he drowned in his own vomit. Oh my god! So on the afternoon of December 11th, 1978, Gacy visited a pharmacy to discuss a potential remodeling deal with the owner of the store. Okay. Because, again, he has this construction and remodeling business. He's, you know, he's there to talk about, like, oh, all the stuff we're going to do to the pharmacy. Yeah, make it look better, get people to come. So, while he's he's in earshot of a 15-year-old part-time employee named Robert Peist... He mentioned that his firm hired teenage boys with starting wage of $5 an hour, right. which was almost double what Pice was earning at the pharmacy. Yep. So after Gacy left the store, Pice told his mom that, you know, some contractor wants to talk to me about a job. Pice left the store and promised, you know, he'd be back real quick. And when Pice failed to return, his family filed a missing persons report for their son with the yep. Plain police. Oh my God. And the owner of the pharmacy named Gacy as the contractor that uh, Pice had likely left the store to talk to a job about. Yeah. So they know that the last person to see Pice was Gacy. It was him. It was totally him. 
So police were convinced that Gacy was behind Pice's disappearance, and they checked into Gacy's record, which showed them that he had an outstanding battery charge against him in Chicago, yep. and that he'd served prison in Iowa for sodomy of a 15-year-old. So, a so far earlier that I feel like it's been lost in the shuffle of everything else you've said, and I'm scared. Mm-hmm. So a search of Gacy's house on December 13th was ordered by a judge uh, because the detectives requested it. Oh my god. And it turned up several suspicious items, including a 1975 high school class ring, yeah. various driver's license, handcuffs, a photo receipt from the pharmacy where Peist worked, oh, no. and a lot more things like syringes, like a bunch of shit. Like a lot of shit. But that's all they found. Wait, so all the bodies are still there and they have no idea? On December 19th, investigators began compiling evidence for a second search warrant of the house. Yeah. And on this day, Gacy invited two detectives inside his house. And while one of the officers distracted Gacy with conversation, another officer walked into Gacy's bedroom in an unsuccessful attempt to write down the serial number of the TV. Yeah. You know, the one that belonged to Sizzik. Yeah, yeah. He's like, I think this is the stolen one. Yep, think that's not his. And while flushing Gacy's toilet, the officer noticed a smell that he suspected could be that of rotting corpses. Oh my God, coming out of the toilet? Coming out of a heating duct in the bathroom. <gasps> And oh my God. the officers who'd previously been in the house uh, had failed to notice this because at on that time the house had been cold. So the so heating the duct heat hadn't wasn't been on. running. Yeah. Oh my God. So police eventually received another search warrant for Gacy's house, and evidence technicians quickly drove with police to Gacy's home. An evidence technician named Daniel Genty yeah. entered the crawl space and crawled to the southwest area and began digging. <gasps> no. Within minutes, he had uncovered putrefied flesh yep. and a human arm bone. Yep. Genty yep. immediately shouted to the investigators that they could charge Gacy with murder. And he added, I think this place is full of kids. How did, how, how did he know? Because they... I, I they knew that all of these kids had gone missing, oh, and so God. many of them from Gacy. So once they started like really looking at him, they were like, "Holy shit!" Holy shit! Yeah. So Gacy's trial began on February sixth of nineteen eighty, and Gacy confessed to the crimes. Oh, he's, so he wasn't trying to hide yeah, it. He, he said, confessed. "I did this," but the arguments in the trial were more focused on whether he could be declared insane and put in a mental right. facility right. or if he was fit to stand trial. Yes. Gacy had told police that the murders had been committed by an alternate personality mm-hmm. and mental health professionals testified for both sides about his mental state. Oh, Some said he so, absolutely wasn't yep. sane. Some say he was very much sane. Oh my God. After a very short jury deliberation, Gacy was ultimately found guilty of committing 33 murders. Well, he had that many bodies under his house. He became known as one of the most vicious serial killers in U.S. history. Yes. And he was sentenced to serve 12 death sentences and 21 natural life sentences. 
So you're oh, Bundy my was convicted God. of three death penalties, twelve plus what? Plus twenty-one natural life sentences. So that's like twenty-one times seventy-five or whatever. Yeah. Oh my God! Never getting out. Never, nope. never, never. Well, absolutely not, because on May 10th of 1994, Gacy was executed by lethal injection. And at the time of his trial, only 22 of his victims had been identified. And the effort continues today. To identify who they were? One of them was identified through DNA testing as recent as July of 2017. Wait, are you... Fucking serious? And that was 16-year-old James Hackinson, who was last known to contact his family August 5th of 1976. Oh so, 40 years later. They finally still, figured out who he they, was. They figured out who he was. 27 of his victims have been identified, but 6 still remain unidentified. And the number of victims... Oh of Well, the true number of victims may never be known because some investigators think it could be as high as 45. So that is the case of John Wayne Gacy. That, I've heard that story before and like, oh God, it's so much. Mm -hmm. It's so much that I can't even. Both of these cases, insane. We're we're jumping into post-mortem because I... No, I was going to say... We are absolutely jumping into postmortem, and I think literally. I don't know how to make. Yeah, I don't draw, think we can make a decision. Draw. I don't know what to do with the draw, but you know what? Know. We'll a figure draw it out. Is going to be fine. You know what? I do week, know what to do for the draw. What you stole my wine pick. I get to pick the wine for the next one. You do. You but, pick the next wine, I'll pick the next topic, but also draw because we can't. Yeah. And because next week is Investigation Discovery. Next week is Investigation Discovery. Yep. I So, I knew we were pulling out the big guns for this episode because, you know, we want, we want to do a great episode for while y'all are traveling. Yeah, while and, y'all are on the road and just like... fuck. These, like, I... J- Jesus. I don't even know... This is How already to close out this episode. far and away <laughs> our longest episode. Yes, far and away longest episode. Also, I get it. Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, I it's a draw. You'll pick the next one. I'll pick the topic. Next yeah. week is investigation discovery. Do not forget to listen in. It's yes. going to be awesome. I cannot wait for mm-hmm. you guys to listen to it. If there was um, any time that y'all were thinking about subscribing, now is the time to do it so you can yes. listen to that episode Tuesday and be prepared for Cold Valley to come out Thursday, November 29th. Yes. Check it out. Because, again, we've seen the first episode of the two-part series and holy Guys, it's shit. so good. It's so uh, good. But after all of that, I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted, and so um, I'm going to close us out. So yep. don't forget to rate and review us on us Apple Podcasts. Yes. Yep. Go to your Apple Podcast app. Give us a five star rating. Let us know what you think. Check us out. 
next week for yes. Cold Valley. Yes. It's going to be amazing. I am so excited. Make sure to I rate and so review drunk. us. on. <laughs> <laughs> Make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Give us that five-star rating and let us know what you think. Yes. And, yes, this wine was strong. It was strong. We've been recording for a while, so we're feeling it more Yeah, than just normal, so... Well, with that, I'm gonna go the fuck to bed. But XOXO... Blood and Wine signing off. Love you guys. Love you too. Bye. Bye.